almost always terrible online. Like, you're just, like, the whipping person for Twitter. Oh, yeah, because they're just like, you, like, have it? Yeah, and then they're like, wait, do you mean it ironically? Is this, like, a joke? And I'm like, no. I, and it's like, I no, like, I actually love really him. love him and want the best for him. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, people mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. The only hope is Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is Allison Senecal, a bookseller at Old Firehouse Books in Fort Collins, Colorado, perhaps best known to X-Twitter as Malicious Glee, himbo taxonomist extraordinaire, fan of many beautiful, dumb men. And the person who was perhaps most anticipating the announcement of X Corp, which has finally been announced. So I can't think of a better time for us to be recording together. Allison, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Not as well as I was on <laughs> Thursday when X Corp was announced, but extremely well. <laughs> I've probably downed two bottles of wine since then in celebration. So I am so happy you're happy. I'm so excited for that book. Obviously, I love Teeny because I represent Teeny. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, slightly biased, but I represent her because I love her work. And I'm happy that she is going to get a chance to step a little bit out of the mystical realm and do something a little more grounded just to show her range. Of course, there are going to be people who like it and people who don't. And at this point, I'm just like, if you don't like my client's work, don't tell me. <laughs> I also think that at this point, if you are actually reading Excalibur and you're not enjoying it, then... Why are you still reading it? But Well, right. Like, right. first of all, save your money. But I also think it's one of the best books in the line by far. It's a great slow burn. Like, it's old yeah. 80s Exactly. It feels like that. Yeah, it's dense and... It's yeah. exactly what I love. Yeah, absolutely. Every issue from Ten of Swords to now has just, in my opinion, been a massive oh, banger. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been perfect. It's like better every month. Oh, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Listen, all I'm going to say is there are a lot of gay men on Twitter who I think should assess the way they talk about female writers on these books mm -hmm. while they're mm -hmm. talking about how much they love female characters in these books. Yes. That's all I'm going to say about that. But boys i think like maybe self-examine a little bit that's just my hot take I and agree. i'll leave it at that i'm so glad that you're here i've wanted to have you on for a while this was a character i knew i wanted to save for you because i feel like we are the only two people in the world particularly that i know who seem to like this character i genuinely unironically love him like yeah no i like yeah. this character yeah I've just never really encountered that anywhere else. So it was like it was like a safe harbor in a storm. <laughs> so I was like, let's do this. Now, I don't think either of us would deny that he has been taken down some truly execrable paths. And I've read and, and bought most of them. Like I bought all of Uncanny Avengers. Right. And you've read every appearance oh, yeah. by this character. Oh, yes. Who is Alex Summers Havoc, if I haven't said that already. <laughs> Cyclops's younger brother to most modern fans unfortunately just the guy who gave the m-word speech because that was his highest profile character beat in the last 20 years post nurse Annie anyway 
it's been a, a weird road for him, but I think he's delightful. And I think that what Zeb Wells is doing with him now in Hellions is going a long way to repairing a character that had been damaged, frankly. And I think there are a number of characters that this era is doing that for, you know, we haven't seen that much of it yet, but it feels like Rain is a character that they're trying to really rehab mm-hmm. after, I would say, maybe 30 years of bad stories, if I'm being Some really of which, which overlap with Havoc's really shitty stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, from the moment they first crossed paths and Extinction Agenda, honestly. And then Rachel Summers mm-hmm. is the other one who it feels like they're really fixing because Rachel's just been a mess from the time she came back in 2000 to about now, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> like I can't think yeah. of a, I can't think of I a mean, Rachel Summers story. I enjoyed her in War of Kings, just like I enjoyed Alex in War of Kings, but like it wasn't a big X story. And like who who else really liked the Emperor Vulcan mini but me? I, I'm not going to like say anything. Right. Yeah. I didn't like any of that stuff. So that's just like where I'm coming at it from. But also I find all of the Rachel Gray stuff just awful. Like, cause it, to me, it feels like a completely different character. Yeah. Like that's not Rachel to me at all. And that falls into that period where it just feels like they were writing a new character totally. with the same yeah. name. More on that when I get to a Rachel Summers episode, maybe uh, in April. That'll be a lot. Not as much as Monet, but that'll be a lot. No, Monet is the, that's going to come in May to coincide with the X-Corp release. I think I'm going to have multiple guests. It's going to be like a very complicated episode (laughs) or two. It may be a two-parter that I release like on two separate days (laughs) just because... So if you're not a huge, if you're not like super up on the news, X-Corp, which was just announced last Thursday, is the newest title in the X line. It is written by my client, Tini Howard. It is drawn by Alberto Fauché. It's Alberto's first work for Marvel, and I am hoping that it'll be a very fruitful partnership. I like the preview pages um, now that... The coloring is fixed? Yes. That w- I'm glad that was handled really quickly, yeah. and I'm. it's unfortunate that it happened again, because it's a problem that keeps happening, especially with this character. And... It was an unfortunate thing to have happen on a day that should have been about how cool this book is going to be. <laughs> like, I am really, really excited about it. Monet is one of my favorite characters. Warren is one of my darlings, certainly, though, not to the extent to which he is like your favorite. Warren is like, character. I always want to say he's not my favorite. Like, but he overall, is. But he is. Like, I can't really <laughs> lie about that. <laughs> So the book is going to be about Warren Worthington III and Monet Sancroix running X-Corp, which is sort of the legitimate arm of Krakoa's pharmaceutical monopoly, as opposed to the Marauders Hellfire trading stuff that Emma is doing, which is shadier. I'm excited about it. I'm hoping it will involve a lot of Monet and Emma interaction, which we haven't seen Mm -hmm. much of over the years. And... Monet is Emma's most successful student and also the student of Emma's most like Emma. And Emma's so proud of her, but Monet cannot stand Emma because they're very similar and she sees through all of Emma's shit. And I find that really to be like a fun dynamic. At this point, it could be kind of a big sister relationship because of the sliding time scale that's happened in the time since. But it could be very funny as sort of a like, Emma's just so delighted with everything Monet is doing. And Monet is just like, 
this white woman aggravates me. I would love to see it as like a dichotomy between like Kate and Emma now. And yeah, I think it would be different because like Kate and Emma have really gotten into sync. And I think Monet being like, yeah, I get it. Like you are proud of me and want me to thrive. Also, I find you unbelievably aggravating. And also I can dress myself already. Yeah. Like I don't (laughs) need your advice. Thank you. Would be fun. But yeah, I'm really, really, really excited about that book. And uh, anybody who's not excited about it can bite me. (laughs) That was a nice unison (laughs) moment there from us, but I agree. In any case, Havoc. People truly don't understand why I like this character at all. And I try to explain to them that in the 80s, he's really fun. So there's that. Yeah, he's like ultimate soft boy. In the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. But also, you know, when they're like, but he's dreadful. I'm like, but have you considered that he's incredibly hot and really stupid? Also that. Which I know is something that appeals to you. Oh, yeah. Which I, I just enjoy that. I always enjoy that. I enjoy a male character who is in over his head who is nice to look at. I find that I mean, enjoyable. That's the himbo definition. Like they get into shit. Yeah. Like oh, and we will get to some himbo oh, yeah. taxonomies in the reader questions because people want your expertise. <laughs> I do pretty much like credit you with repopularizing the term on Twitter in a I big hope way. Accurately because I'm real sick of it not being used accurately. What I'd love to do before we dive into the man himself and cry havoc ourselves (laughs) is get a little bit of a rundown on your backstory with the X-Men, your origin story with these comics and these characters and why you love it all so much. I didn't read any 60s or 70s or even early 80s X-Men until those essential editions came out, those big Mm -hmm. black and white great cheap omnibi um omnibuses i don't know what the plural is i think it's omnibi but i say omnibuses because i don't want it to be like that thing where i said octopi for years and then found that it was octopuses so i'm just not and i've completely forgotten my classics education at this point so i don't we don't have to know yeah i don't i don't remember (laughs) whatever we don't need to we really should i was actually negotiating an omnibus deal recently and i ought to know what (laughs) Because we are book people. I ought to know what the plural is, but I don't, you know, it's fine. Whatever. I'll deal with it. Um, but yeah, so like the first stuff I encountered was 80s. It was X Factor. It was the 80s Claremont stuff, especially the Outback era. Best era. It was New Mutants. That was all mine. So Havoc, New Mutants, good Warren content in the 80s. Um, yeah, because that's when he goes archangel yeah. and is like real sad. Yeah, that was the when good poor Candy content. bites yeah. it. Yeah, yes. yeah, that was yeah all that good shit. So all of the Warren and Cameron Hodge stuff. Yeah, all which the Cameron is Hodge the best. drama. I know you have trouble with podcasts, especially long podcasts. But the Warren episode, I think you would enjoy because it is a lot of it is about the talented Mr. Ripley vibe that he and Cameron have throughout. Fantastic. <laughs> Also, like a good and like a good twenty five percent of the episode is about Candy Southern. Okay, I've seen comments. Like, I try not to. I don't like search for the podcast online or anything because 
that's the first thing I always tell my clients not to do is like, don't name search, don't do any of that stuff. It's not good for your mental health. So now that I'm like a content creator in this way, I'm like, okay, don't name search. But I, <laughs> do, I have come across a couple of times. I think it was like a Reddit comment or something where they were like, I love that podcast, except sometimes if he's more interested in an adjacent character, you get a really weird long episode about that character like the warren episode is secretly kind of a candy southern episode and i was like if that's a crime put me in prison because i'm not ashamed and i would do it again that's fair anyway back to you back to you you were reading the you were reading the black and white omnibi right omnibuses, but that was, that the was essential editions yeah that was an until where did you start i started i mean i probably started with 80s x factor like, that was, because, mm-hmm. I mean, they were just laying around the house. Like, all the right. old 80s X-Men stuff and even the 90s stuff. I think Mutant X was one of the first things I picked up at the comic store myself. So, were your, were your parents comics fans? Like, you yes. had the 80s stuff lying oh, around? Yeah. yeah. And they probably stopped getting their subscriber stuff by the late 90s. My dad stopped after AOA. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, that feels like the time most dads stopped. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It was like, that's, that's enough. <laughs> yeah. Which, like, it, my dad was like, well, son, I was, you know, in my late 30s. And <laughs> <laughs> it felt like a good time to stop like a good time comics. to be stop ordering comic books. Also, like, frankly, it got bad. Also, extremely true. Yeah. Like, it just did. Like, so, I mean, at one point, yeah. what, Extreme X-Men was probably my favorite book on the stand. Mm-hmm. It was an X book, which doesn't really speak to the quality of the other X-Men books coming out. Well, that's because you were not a Morrison fan. I was I not a Morrison fan. I didn't like it. Yeah. I liked Quitely's art when I was that age, but I didn't. I just didn't like the high concept shit. Like honestly, like, that's why I liked Mutant X when I was younger. It was just stupid. Mutant and... X is about as low concept as yeah, you can. absolutely. It was just stupid <laughs> and fun and like over at DC. Like I was having a good time with just like all of the fun '90s Flash stuff. Like that was my thing. So, yeah, the Wally West yeah. era. Yeah, and like all of like the what Greg Rucka's Electra and like shit like that. Like absolutely. I mean, I'm a big Greg Rucka head, so right. me too. Yeah, but yeah, no. I mean, I love the Morrison X Men, but it definitely is. If you don't like, let's get incredibly stoned and go Galaxy Bray to do weird high concept stuff. And now that's what I enjoy. But when I was like 12 or like 11 or whatever, I was like, I don't really give a yeah. shit about this. Like. I just want relationship drama. And then Chuck Austin was like, what about this relationship drama? And I was like, not like that. <laughs> not like that. Not like that. I quit. I will say that my appreciation for Chuck Austin X-Men has really gone up over the years. And mine has too. Like he's, he's fun. The Draco is still one of the absolute worst oh, X-Men stories absolutely. ever told. However, in general, the Austin run at least is really funny to oh, talk yeah. about. And 20 years hence, when most of the characters right. have recovered from what was done to them in it. I mean, particularly, I was struck doing the Lorna episode with Corey McCreary by how much I like Austin's Lorna more than most other Lornas. It's just over like the, the fact that yeah, crazy Lorna was actually the most fun anyone had ever had with Lorna on some level is it's sad, frankly, but it was because the character has just been so underserved. It was like, at least she's going in a direction, you know, and then they rolled it all back in space, which is again, why I just don't much care for all of the 
Starjammer stuff, but we'll get there. I like the Starjammer stuff, but I also love Marvel Cosmic, so like it was That's perfect, fair, yeah. Perfect like That's yeah. a real marriage of your interests Absolutely. for sure. It was like there's Crystal, there's Ronin, why not? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't mind like a Starjammer's book now. Mm-hmm. I just didn't think that Alex and Lorna and Rachel made a ton of sense. I think they did, but just because Scott team. didn't make a ton of sense and Scott was kind of like uninterested in going after any of that shit, like when their dad died. I also just hated everything about Vulcan. So that like the existence of Vulcan, <laughs> the, so it was just a, it was a rough, the Brubaker X-Men is rough for me. It's like the only Brubaker thing I don't really like. And it's, same, yeah, same. Like I, like I'm a huge Daredevil fan, and like I love his. Daredevil. Certainly, his Daredevil is great. I love Gotham Central. Oh which yeah, he did with oh, no, Gotham Central is like one of my favorites. Gotham Central and Seven Soldiers of Victory are like neck and neck for my favorite DC comic of all time, and we're coming out at the same time. I had no idea oh, yeah. how lucky I was. But Brubaker's X Men, I hate. I mean, I hate Deadly Genesis with everything in me. I hate all the Vulcan stuff that spins out of it. And I hate Emma was evil because Shaw was abusing her. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, Emma was evil because she liked being evil. That's more interesting. <laughs> it's fine to say that he was like a, a abusive creep. Cause he clearly was right, but, but separately from that, like Emma also separately from, it. yeah. Right, Emma yeah. also like wanted to do those right. bad things and we can come up with sympathetic reasons why she was like that but you don't need i mean frankly i thought morrison in new x-men hit it on the head when they were just like listen it was the 80s i was on a ton of drugs who wasn't doing coke right like exactly (laughs) like she's like well scott like it was a different time and i was on tons of coke so you know let's not throw stones shall we You couldn't get away with that now, I don't think, at Disney Marvel. But it was very, very funny when Morrison did it. I do kind of hate the, like, weird content regression since the 80s. Like, it's just... Yeah. Yeah, it's very weird. I I understand, but, like, a T-plus rating now... The fact that they still are not allowed, ever since Quesada brought the hammer down, like, you're still not allowed to show any Marvel characters smoking is just... Some of them like to smoke. Like, come on. Yeah, it's like, I'm sorry, the idea that Betsy Braddock is not chaining cigs <laughs> is just ridiculous. Right. Or What I love that Teeny has done recently, I noticed this, is that Pete Wisdom always has a lollipop. It's for his oral fixation. Right, yeah, right. Yeah, and I, I like to pretend they're Nicorette lollipops and it's just like not stated. <laughs> but also it's funny because when he's walking around and has the lollipop stick poking out of his mouth, it looks like a cigarette. Right. So you get the visual effect. Even if, you know, but meanwhile, over at DC, John Constantine, who Pete Wisdom just is, literally, like, is just chaining. And I'm like, it just makes it feel more real because there are people who smoke. The fact that Wolverine can't have a cigar in Madripoor is stupid. Like, kids today understand smoking is bad for you, I think. Hot take, let superheroes smoke. Especially let them smoke if they're stressed out and it's clearly a bad habit. Like, I want to see Betsy Braddock smoking because she just fucked up something really huge. Like, Betsy just got into another cosmic mess of her own design that she just, like, fucked it up. And so she's, like, hanging out the window of the Starlight Citadel, chiefing a cig and, like, listening to Depeche Mode. I agree. That's what I want. And I don't know if we'll ever get that again, unfortunately. 
I was just thinking about this because I was talking to someone about Mary Jane Watson. There's that whole arc in the 90s where Mary Jane will not stop chain smoking and it's causing a lot of problems in their marriage. But I think it's so funny. And like if Peter's just like, you need to stop smoking. She's like, I don't actually need to do what you tell me. I'm a grown woman. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that does end with a very special episode where they see a guy dying of cancer. And she's like, I have to quit. But, you know, it was fun while it lasted. So as you can see, this podcast gets tangential. I'm going to bring us back around to Havoc. Why do you love Havoc? What's your Alex Summers deal? I mean, he's a mess. Like, he's just the biggest mess. Somebody online the other day said Scott is the Clint of the X-Men. And that's just... As in Hawkeye? Yeah, and that's, yeah just, that's, that's just That's simply that's incorrect. Like, totally wrong. Like, if anybody, Alex is the Hawkeye of the X-Men. For sure. Like, they're both... I mean, they're both hot and blonde and absolutely messy as shit. Sometimes evil. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, they've both been there, done that. But I think he's also, on a serious note, like, much more relatable than a lot of the X-Men. Yeah. Like, he's just, like, relatably messy. Like, he didn't, didn't want to be an X-Man. Didn't want to be on the team. That's the thing is he doesn't want the responsibility. And he is constantly rejecting the call right. to heroism, and which he I find. the right thing. But, yes. he, but he doesn't want to be involved with it. He doesn't want to kill anybody. Um, doesn't even right. want to kill aliens. He doesn't even want to kill the brood. Right, yeah. He has like, that whole breakdown over killing a bunch of the brood. Which I love. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. that's a real... That's that's the thing. When like people don't get it, and I'm like, you really do, I think, have to go back and read the 80s stuff. Sure. Because... Yeah, because he's like, well, he has, he that has such he's an like, arc. human or alien. He's like, what's the difference? He's like, I've still what's the difference? life. He's like, now I'm Wolverine, and right. I hate Wolverine. Right. So it's like right. a very, which I love that yeah. bit. Well, like, there's that line where he gets all, like, shitty and sarcastic with Logan, because, like, what, the very first time he joins the team, and Logan's like, well, we could just kill everybody. And then, like, three issues later, Alex's like, well, we could just kill him. And Logan's like, I like that. He's like, I am absolutely fucking kidding. Yeah, I am kidding, actually. No, we can't just come. I also love that Betsy... That. Betsy's solution almost immediately oh, yeah. She's is like, like oh, well, we could, just, we like, could kill, kill him. him. Yeah. And Alex is like, what the fuck? Who am I on this team with? <laughs> right. This is, well, no. And it's like, we could kill him about Alex. Oh, yeah. Like, cause, because Alex discovers that the X-Men oh, are planning yeah, to go right. underground. And Betsy and, and Betsy Storm is like, are like, oh, we could just like kill him. And Storm's like, what? Betsy has already tampered with his brain once. Right. And tells Storm like, well, I can't really tamper with his brain again because I might damage it permanently. However, Too we could just that. kill him. <laughs> Right. Storm thinks about it for a second. Yeah. It's like, no, we don't do that. Right. We don't do that. But Betsy is like in. This is the thing that people don't remember about 80s Betsy. She's like tromping around in that little pink nightgown costume. She's not even in the armor yet from yeah. the Outback. She's, she's in her little like, like pink chiffon. Yeah. And she's like, let's just murder. I think we she's should. She's like, what him. if we kill him? Because yeah. people, she was a secret agent. Oh, like, yeah. she's like, a she's a spy. She has killed people before. She's just like, well, he might have to die, actually, you know, because then no one will know what we're doing. And she's never met him. Emma's role in the X-Men today is basically the role that Betsy had in the X-Men oh, yeah. in the 80s, which was to be the telepath with pretty much no morals about it, who wasn't ashamed of that. Like the way that Jean and Xavier pretend like, oh, I would never, but they do constantly. Mm. She's just like. We could just mind wipe him. Let's just let's just do a mind wipe. Or we could just, you know, lobotomize him with my mind and he would not be able to do anything. Like, that's just sort of her. She's like, what if I just made him a vegetable? That would work. But with Alex, it's really fun because their first meeting is she's like, well, we could kill him. 
And everybody has to be like, no, I don't think so. He's like, who the fuck is this lady? And then for the entire run of their time on the X-Men together, he's like simultaneously terrified of her and also like low-key, very horny for her. Oh, well, like, well, like right after Inferno, Betsy's like, I'm just going to show up to your room in my name. In lingerie, essentially. And I'm just, yeah. We're going to have a serious conversation. Yeah, I don't understand. He's like, what is happening? And it's Betsy in her very classic, like she has these very filmy, yeah, like nightgown slips Mm -hmm. that she would wear over though, like a teddy. Mm -hmm. Like it was always this very like sensual lingerie, bustier kind of thing. But oh, it's modest because I have like a sarong on over it. And it's like, is it though? You know, whatever mental, like, I'm covered up she needed to have in her head. She was doing it. But Alex is just like, why is the British woman in my room in lingerie vaguely threatening me again? threatening me, but also seducing me at the same time. But also, she's so hot and so scary. And this is right after his whole Goblin Queen experience. So he's just had, he just endlessly, first Lorna gets possessed by malice. Then Madeline's soul is lost to the devil. Then... Betsy is just he's like what and my favorite thing about that it's sad honestly they have not really ever interacted again no which is a real shame because it's one of my favorite relationships from that outback period it's so interesting it's basically Scott and Emma before Scott and Emma right in terms of the Morrison Scott and Emma not in terms of what came after the culmination of it is so great when Betsy, who is precognitive in the 80s, which we're just not going to worry about because that would present problems now. But in the 80s, she was a precog and she has like a vision like if we face the Reavers again, we will die. So she's like, all right, everybody has to go through the Siege Perilous. And she convinces all the others because they're not that convincing Colossus and Dazzler to do something is not that hard. But Alex, Alex is like a little extra help. So she yeah, Alex is like, no. Yeah. So she starts finishing his sentences telepathically mm-hmm. and like changing what he's saying. And he's confused. And then she just starts down. kissing yeah. him. Yeah. And he's like, this feels so good. So like, why does it feel like I'm betraying everything I hold dear? You know, like, why do <laughs> why does it feel like I'm losing sight of everything I believe in? And then she just sort of like nudges him through the portal. And then she follows after him and like the Reavers are coming and she's just like, bye bitches. <laughs> and then the, the Siege Perilous like goes like clinkity clink, like onto the ground. I love that. I also think it is like the reason I would love to see them interact now, especially now that he and Kanon have this dynamic on Hellions. Mm-hmm. Betsy says in 1989 in the story right after the key that breaks the lock when she has been put in Kanon's body. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a retcon that happens later. But once she has like been Japanified in that arc as Lady Mandarin, she says to Wolverine, if this is what the Siege Perilous did to me, took my memories, made me do evil things, changed my body so I don't recognize myself anymore, is this my punishment for what I did to Alex? Like, she doesn't say him by name, but he's right. who she's talking about. And... Wolverine's like, I mean, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> you know. And it's never really raised again, but... Well, she did also throw him off a building. Wasn't that her that, like, threw him off a building right after all of that happened? That is when they... In- they do interact again briefly in Extinction Agenda, right. when he's 
because his will get there. But the way the Siege Perilous judges right. him is by making him a racist right. who hates mutants, which is like that's like the start of the tumble down. When we get to the M word, I think like holistically, that is part of the DNA of how you can make that character beat make sense without the character being destroyed. I think right. it all kind of goes back to Genosha. But yeah, that's sort of the last time they interact though, because he goes off to X Factor and she's in the X-Men and then he goes off to Mutant X and then she's dead. Right. And then by the time she comes back, he's in, in space. space. Yeah. So they've just never really crossed paths again. But I would love to see that revisited because yeah, I think that the Siege Perilous does kind of judge them both in a way that's interesting as opposed to the honestly very nice lives that it gives to Dazzler and Colossus. Yeah. And the only other person who goes through it is Rogue and Rogue confuses it because of Carol in her head. Mm -hmm. So like that just gets, she doesn't get a new life. It just all gets fucked up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's like, this is two people. I don't understand what's happening. Before we get real deep, I think it probably would be smart to do the Cerebro character file real quick, just because this character has had a weird long history. And I think we probably want to catch everybody up. Before you go into... Yeah, before we go into like... Mutant X and all of that insane stuff. So let's pause for that. This is a pretty straightforward character file because he hasn't really been retconned very much. The only core retcons are like... As with Scott, their whole backstory with the plane crash isn't added until the 80s. But otherwise, it's pretty straightforward. So we will dive in there and return on the other side with Alison Senecal to talk more about Havoc. X-Men, X-Men. Alexander Summers, called Alex and best known by the codename Havoc, with a K for some reason, is one of the two later additions to the original 60s team of X-Men. Created by Arnold Drake and Don Hack, he debuts in 1969's X-Men 54. Quickly paired off romantically with fellow newbie Lorna Dane, he had little room to breathe as a character before the book's cancellation the following year with issue 66. In the decades since, he has struggled to find a place in the franchise outside his brother's shadow. Alex is introduced in one of the most striking retcons of the 60s X-Men period, when it's abruptly revealed that team leader Scott Summers, codenamed Cyclops, has a younger brother he's been keeping a secret from the rest of the team. Scott reveals the existence of Alex to his friends Bobby Drake, Hank McCoy, and Warren Worthington, and his girlfriend Jean Grey, so that the X-Men can attend Alex's college graduation. Because Scott was previously established as an orphan with no family, complicated retcons in future stories would further explain the brothers' relationship and establish Alex had been adopted while Scott was not. Kidnapped from his graduation by agents of an ancient Egyptian-themed villain called the Living Pharaoh, don't worry about it, Alex used his mutant power for the first time to protect his brother, who has followed after the henchman as Cyclops. The Living Pharaoh explains that he and Alex both absorb the same kind of ambient cosmic energy, and that while Alex lives, the Pharaoh is unable to meet his full potential. Putting Alex in a coffin-like contraption that blocks cosmic rays, the pharaoh absorbs enough energy to become the giant living monolith. Again, don't worry about it. Alex manages to burst free with a plasma blast and defeat the monolith, but decides his power makes him too dangerous to be around other people, so he runs off into the desert. There he's discovered by Larry Trask, who has re-established his father Bolivar's mutant-hunting sentinel robot program. Trask offers Alex a special energy-containing costume that regulates his power, and Alex accepts it. 
He's then blackmailed into working for Trask because a fellow mutant, Lorna Dane, an ally of the X-Men captured by Trask, who threatens to torture her viciously unless Alex complies. Eventually, Alex helps the X-Men destroy Trask's operation, but he's grievously injured in the process. He's saved by Dr. Carl Lycos, a scientist the X-Men learn about from Charles Xavier's notes, but Lycos turns out to be an energy vampire. When he tries to drain Alex's life force, he's transformed into the parasitic vampire pterodactyl called Sauron. Do not worry about it, but he's great. Alex formally joins the X-Men alongside Lorna in the last two issues of the initial run before the book is cancelled. Bobby's furious that Lorna's chosen Alex over him, which leads to a cameo appearance in Incredible Hulk 150. After Alex accidentally injures Bobby during an argument about Lorna, Alex quits the team and disappears. Professor X sends Lorna after him, but the Hulk finds her instead, thinking she's his deceased green-haired love, Jarella. Alex protects Lorna from the Hulk, and the two decide to return to the X-Men. Instead, they're kidnapped by the conspiracy called the Secret Empire, and eventually rescued in a team-up story where the X-Men join forces with Captain America. In 1975, Marvel relaunched the X-Men title with Giant Size X-Men No. 1 by writer Len Wein and artist Dave Cockrum, in which Professor Xavier recruits a new team to rescue the 60s X-Men from the clutches of the living island Krakoa. After Giant Size, the original X-Men besides Cyclops leave the team. While new writer Chris Claremont brings back Jean Grey in short order, he allows Alex and Lorna to retire in order to pursue graduate studies in geophysics. The two never felt at home with the X-Men and enjoy a quiet life together in New Mexico until X-Men 97 where they're brainwashed by the Shi'ar agent Davon Shakari, alias Eric the Red. Shakari mind-controls Lorna and Alex into becoming his operatives. Havoc and Polaris battle the X-Men in an effort to stop Professor Xavier from meeting the rogue Shi'ar princess Lalandra, but they're defeated and restored to their senses. While recovering from that ordeal, Alex and Lorna move to Muir Island off the coast of Scotland to assist the X-Men's ally Dr. Moira McTaggart, and the characters fall into the background again for some time. In 1979's X-Men 119, when Jean Grey arrives on Muir Island after a climactic battle with Magneto, they comfort her after she reveals her belief that the other X-Men have been killed. Several issues later, they participate in the famous Proteus arc from X-Men 125 to 128. After the reunited X-Men defeat Proteus, Alex and Lorna return to New Mexico to continue their PhD studies. Further details of Alex's backstory are revealed in 1981's Uncanny X-Men 144, as Scott recovers repressed memories of a plane crash when he was 10 years old. He and Alex managed to jump out with a parachute, thanks to their mother's assistance, but both of their parents were apparently killed when the burning plane exploded. The parachute caught fire, and the Summers brothers plummeted to Earth. Alex and Lorna return in the following issue, Uncanny X-Men 145, where Professor Xavier summons them into battle alongside fellow retired X-Men Iceman and Banshee to save the current team from the supervillain Arcade, an assassin who traps his victims in a lethal amusement park called Murder World. The following year, in Uncanny X-Men 158, Alex meets his long-lost father, Christopher Summers, a.k.a. Corsair, who has spent decades leading the space pirates called the Starjammers in the Shi'ar Galaxy. In 1987's Uncanny X-Men 218, Alex and Lorna discover an abandoned brood spaceship in the desert. Alex goes to New York to inform the X-Men, but overhears their plans to go underground following the events of the mutant massacre. Their new member, Psylocke, telepathically wipes Alex's memories, but his psychic defensive training with Professor Xavier makes the erasure imperfect. After suffering dreams in which he's attacked by the X-Men, Alex tracks them down again. Psylocke is afraid another mind wipe will cause permanent damage, so she suggests they kill Alex to preserve their secrets. Team leader Storm instead decides to explain the situation, and Alex decides he's been on the sidelines for too long. He officially rejoins the team to help them defend themselves against the evil Marauders, though he worries how Lorna will react. It turns out that won't be a problem, as in his absence, Lorna has been possessed by the psychic entity Malice, the leader of the same marauders who are stalking the X-Men. 
When the X-Men fight the Marauders in San Francisco, Lorna tries to kill him. Brokenhearted, Alex remains with the team and forms a bond with his brother Scott's wife, Madeline Pryor, whom Scott had abandoned after the apparent resurrection of Jean Grey. Maddie and Scott's infant son Nathan has been kidnapped by the Marauders, and Maddie was left in a coma. After she recovers, she begins aiding the X-Men for her own protection, and in the hopes that they might be able to find her child. Alongside Maddie and his new teammates, Alex sacrifices his life in Dallas in the 1988 franchise-wide event Fall of the Mutants, empowering a spell their ally Forge uses to banish the cosmic being called the Adversary. Secretly, they are resurrected by Roma, the Omniversal Guardian. Wolverine suggests to Storm they implement an idea she'd previously floated called Plan Omega, allowing the world to believe they're dead so the X-Men can operate in secret. After defeating the cyborg villains called the Reavers, the team establishes a new base of operations in Australia. Roma gives the X-Men a relic called the Siege Perilous, a mystical portal that judges all who pass through it and reincarnates them into a new life with no memories. Following up on the brood ship that Alex and Lorna had found, the X-Men discover the parasitic aliens are now using mutants as hosts. Alex is forced to kill one of the brood to save Storm's life. It's the first time he's used his powers to kill, and he's deeply traumatized, especially when the brood alien reverts in death to the human appearance of its host. In 1988's Uncanny X-Men Annual, the X-Men visit the prehistoric jungle called the Savage Land hidden in Antarctica, only to discover it has become a frozen, barren wasteland. The High Evolutionary, don't worry about it, is hoping to turn this around, and introduces Alex to his laboratory assistant, a woman he calls Zala. Alex is struck by how familiar Zala seems, but he wasn't part of the X-Men back in the 70s, so he doesn't recognize her as the classic villainous Zaladane. Over time, Alex and Madeline Pryor feel more and more drawn to one another, and their friendship deepens into a romantic attraction. In the lead-up to the 1989 franchise-wide event Inferno, the two begin a sexual relationship despite Alex's misgivings about potentially betraying his brother Scott. Alex is unaware that demons have corrupted Maddie into the demon sorceress called the Goblin Queen, who soon unleashes hell on Earth in Manhattan. Alex refuses to abandon Maddie even when her darker nature is revealed, and is manipulated by the corrupting influence of the Inferno into becoming her consort, the Goblin Prince. He battles Scott's new team X-Factor, only to be shocked at the revelation that Madeline is a clone of Jean Grey, created by the evil mutant geneticist Mr. Sinister, the employer of the Marauders, and the operator of the orphanage where Scott and Alex were taken after their plane crash. Alex decides to help the X-Men fight Madeline, though he hopes to save her. He does not succeed. After her death, Alex powers up Scott with plasma blasts, and Scott uses his optic blast to apparently kill Mr. Sinister and avenge Madeline. In the miniseries Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown, written by Louise and Walt Simonson, Havoc and Wolverine go on vacation in Mexico together, which, sure. Havoc is smitten with Nurse Scarlet McKenzie, who turns out to be working for Russian terrorists who want to use Alex's power to do something nuclear, I don't know, don't worry about it, it's fun. Scarlet dies, and Wolverine decides not to tell Alex she was evil because he's still upset about the whole Maddie situation. After a battle with the villains Nanny and the Orphan Maker, Alex is forced to fire a blast at Nanny's retreating aircraft, triggering an explosion that apparently kills Storm. Shortly thereafter, the X-Men get a distress call from Lorna, who is broken free temporarily from Malice's control. Alex is too late to rescue her, though, and winds up following her kidnappers to the Savage Land, where Zaladane reveals she is Lorna's long-lost sister and uses a machine to steal Lorna's magnetic powers and remove Malice from her body. Alex and Lorna escape the dungeons, but the X-Men are then teleported by their ally Gateway, without Lorna, back to the Outback. Psylocke has had a precognitive vision, informing her a rematch with the Reavers will lead to the deaths of the whole team. She convinces Dazzler and Colossus, the other remaining X-Men, to escape through the Siege Perilous. Alex refuses, so Psylocke uses her telepathy to seduce him into following her instructions. 
In the 1990 franchise-wide event Extinction Agenda, the reader sees the new life the Siege Perilous chose for Alex after judging him. He was reborn as an apparently human amnesiac in the anti-mutant apartheid state Genosha, and quickly rises in the ranks of the Genosian army to become a slave-commanding magistrate. His memories return when he faces his brother in battle, but he pretends to still be influenced so that he can get close to and strike the final blow to Cameron Hodge, the Genosian leader. Alex decides to stay behind on Genosha to supervise the transition out of the apartheid government. He's accompanied by the new mutant Rain Sinclair, alias Wolfsbane, who had been briefly enslaved through the Genosian mutate process. A year later, after the Muir Island saga, the X-Men and X-Factor teams reunite as one big X-Men team, and Chris Claremont exits the franchise. The name X-Factor, along with its eponymous comic book under new writer Peter David, is taken over by Alex and Lorna, who are tapped by Human Defense Department official Dr. Valerie Cooper to head up a new team of public-facing mutant superheroes in the service of the United States government. They're joined by Wolfsbane, their old friend Jamie Madrox the Multiple Man, former Brotherhood of Evil Mutants and Avengers member Pietro Maximoff, codenamed Quicksilver, and Guido Caracella, codenamed Strong Guy. Alex and Lorna get back together, hoping they can repair their relationship after all the weirdness they've each been through over the last several years of publication. Rain, meanwhile, has a crush on Alex that quickly escalates into creepy stalking, but it turns out her behavior is being influenced by the conditioning of the Genosian mutate bonding process. Over the course of X-Factor, it becomes clear that Alex is extremely insecure leading the new team, feeling he can't live up to Scott's example. After Jamie Madrox apparently dies from the legacy virus, Alex quits the team. Lorna hunts him down in Hawaii, where the couple is shocked by the return of Malice. The energy being has been ordered by Mr. Sinister to take over Lorna once more, but doesn't want to be trapped again. Instead, she possesses Alex, and tries to kill Lorna to destroy the body once and for all. Mr. Sinister intervenes, threatening to kill Alex if Lorna doesn't submit to becoming Malice's host again, and Lorna accepts in order to save him. Alex refuses to cooperate, and holds on to Malice to prevent her from entering Lorna's body. Malice ends up abandoning them both, and Mr. Sinister kills her for her failure. Under new writer Howard Mackey, in X-Factor 118, Alex is kidnapped by Agents of the Dark Beast, an evil alternate version of Hank McCoy. They leave a note supposedly from Alex saying he's abandoned the team and broken up with Lorna. Lorna's horrified when Alex turns up as a member of the new Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, apparently under Dark Beast's control. She tries to reason with him, but he blasts her with the full might of his mutant power, nearly killing her. Alex later explains he was working undercover, but Lorna is understandably still pissed, and in the penultimate issue of the series, she ends their romantic relationship. In the final issue, September 1998's 149, Alex is apparently killed by a malfunctioning time machine. In reality, his mind is transferred into the body of an Alex Summers on an alternate world, who is killed by sentinels at the same moment. In the new book Mutant X, also by Howard Mackey, Alex struggles to acclimate to this new reality, where Scott was taken to Shi'ar space with their parents, and Alex became the famous superhero and leader. He's married to Madeline Pryor, codenamed Marvel Woman, and they have a son named Scotty, whose telepathic powers immediately tell him that his father has been replaced. Alex leads a superhero team called The Six in various adventures, even choosing to remain in the new reality when he's offered the chance to return to Earth-616. Eventually, he becomes a living nexus of all realities, don't worry about it, and expends all his power to free Madeline from the influence of the Goblin Force. Do not worry about it. He reunites Maddie with their son Scotty, and then is trapped in the darkness between dimensions. This leads directly into Chuck Austin's infamous run on Uncanny X-Men, where Alex is discovered alive but in a coma. He returns to the mansion accompanied by Annie Gasakanian, a nurse who has been caring for him as a John Doe. Once Alex is awake, Lorna's overjoyed to see him again, especially because she's experiencing post-traumatic psychosis from witnessing the genocide in Genosha. 
she immediately proposes marriage, much to the surprise of the other X-Men, and Nurse Annie, who's fallen in love with Alex while caring for him during his coma, because her telepathic son created romantic dreams for them to share. It's gross. This storyline is gross. Alex never accepts the proposal, but Lorna begins planning the wedding anyway. On the big day, he leaves her at the altar and proclaims his love for Nurse Annie. Lorna absolutely loses her mind and tries but fails to kill Alex and Nurse Annie, who fly off to Paris to recreate their telepathic romance dreams IRL. Weird. Weird storyline. Did you know Chuck Austin based Nurse Annie on his own wife and identified with Havoc? Troubling, in my opinion. Deeply troubling. Around this time, Alex is briefly possessed by the Alex of the Mutant X universe, who it turns out is evil as shit, and the dimension-hopping team called the Exiles put a stop to that and put our Alex back in control. Under new writer Peter Milligan, after Nurse Annie has exited the picture, Lorna begins dating Bobby, and Alex realizes he actually does love her after all. Alex tries to convince Lorna to leave Bobby and get back together with him, but she's understandably kind of pissed about the whole wedding situation. They don't have much time to discuss before the 2005 company-wide event House of M, which leads into the Decimation, in which Wanda Maximoff, the Scarlet Witch, driven to madness, attempts to erase mutant kind from existence. She doesn't fully succeed, but only about 200 mutants worldwide remain empowered. Lorna isn't one of them, and when she decides to leave the X-Men, Alex goes with her. She's then kidnapped by Apocalypse, who turns her into his newest horseman of pestilence, restoring her magnetic powers but also making her a superhuman carrier of horrific diseases. The X-Men eventually realize Pestilence is Lorna, and when she begins dying due to the diseases overloading her body, Alex fearlessly performs mouth-to-mouth resuscitation and saves her life. Alex and Lorna then end up on a new team of X-Men on a journey to the Shi'ar galaxy. Under new writer Ed Brubaker, the Shi'ar Empire has devolved into civil war, and the X-Men ally themselves with Empress Lalandra, while the other side of the conflict rallies behind Lalandra's sister Deathbird and Deathbird's consort Gabriel Summers, aka Vulcan, Alex and Scott's long-lost brother. Do not worry about it. Alex and Lorna finally resume their romantic relationship and then end up stranded behind when the other X-Men are forced back to Earth. Alex's father Corsair is killed, compelling Alex and Lorna to become the new leaders of his crew of heroic space pirates, the Starjammers, and I am still not going to cover all this space stuff. Sorry, not this time. Vulcan episode someday. Promise. I promise. When they get back to Earth, Alex and Lorna aren't sure about Scott's new utopia project. Wolverine suggests they return to X-Factor, now a detective agency called X-Factor Investigations to help guide that team after the apparent death, again, of its leader Jamie Madrox. He is, of course, not actually dead this time either. Lorna then recovers some traumatic memories she'd repressed from her childhood and winds up catatonic for a bit. Alex is uncomfortable back with X-Factor even after she gets better. He decides this is all a regression for them and tries to convince Lorna to leave with him, but she refuses. Lorna stays with the team and Alex leaves, and they break up again, but amicably this time. In the wake of Avengers vs. X-Men, in which Cyclops really fucks up big time, Captain America invites Alex to be the leader of a new squad of Avengers called the Unity Squad, intended to help ameliorate human-mutant relations. This is Uncanny Avengers by Rick Remender, the book that would paint Alex into a corner until basically a year ago. It's an Avengers book, so I'm not going to linger on it for very long, but I'll give you the highlights. In Uncanny Avengers 5, Alex delivers a monologue at a press conference that has become known in comics fandom as the M-Word Speech. He refers to mutant as the M-word, saying he doesn't want to be identified as a mutant, but instead as just Alex. Call me Alex, a person like anyone else. It's really bad. It's as bad as you've heard. It's well-intentioned, I guess, but it sucks hard. Alex starts dating his teammate Janet Van Dyne, codenamed the Wasp, and in a complicated storyline you do not need to worry about, they live on a spaceship for six years, secretly getting married and raising a daughter, born without an ex-gene, who they named Catherine after Alex's late mother. Little Katie is lost when the timeline is rewritten, which is very traumatic for Alex and Janet. 
In an attempt to recover Katie from Kang the Conqueror, don't worry about it, Alex ends up getting half of his face permanently disfigured by overpowering cosmic energy. This all leads into the company-wide event Axis, which sucks. I am not going to explain it to you. I am not going to explain the Red Onslaught. It's not happening. What you need to know is that a spell happens that inverts everyone's morality, and by the end of the event, Alex hasn't been fixed, so he stays inverted and evil. Then comes the Inhumans vs. X-Men era, which, as always, we are gonna skip. Alex is evil for a while, but Lord and Emma Frost manage to restore his morality, and the healer Elixir repairs his disfigured face. Eventually, he sacrifices his life to save Scott in writer Matt Rosenberg's run on Uncanny X-Men. Yada yada yada, Krakoa! In the 2019 soft reboot Dawn of X by Jonathan Hickman, Alex is resurrected by the power of the Five. In the new book Hellions by Zeb Wells, Alex suffers a psychotic break during a mission in San Francisco, giving into violent urges that seem like an echo of his Axis inversion. The Quiet Council of Krakoa assigns him to a new squad of problem mutants called the Hellions, supervised by Mr. Sinister and led by Psylocke, except not the Psylocke Alex knew in the 80s, Betsy Braddock, this is a different Psylocke, the Assassin Kanon, don't worry about it right now. The Hellions' first mission involves a confrontation with the resurrected and fully insane Madeline Pryor, who tortures Alex before she is killed by his teammate Greycrow. Alex is devastated when the Quiet Council rules against resurrecting Madeline on Krakoa, ostensibly due to her status as a clone. Feeling abandoned by his friends and family, he is at least finding some solace with his strange new team of misfits. X-Men, X-Men. I hope that was engaging. There was a lot of don't worry about it in that one. Uh, it's a Dwy-heavy character file because... <laughs> You truly don't need to worry about a lot of things, um, but we are going to dig into those in this section because a lot of you wrote in with questions about stories that obviously as a Havoc fan, neither of us is particularly enthused about. I think it's important to repress a lot of Havoc stories. I think it's good for your mental health to just forget about it. When I revisited uncanny avengers for this episode i was stunned at how much of it i had fully blocked out oh, of my brain yeah and i'm about to cover it with somebody else for a big critical review series i am not oh wow forward to it but like we're gonna like dig in like issue by issue it is one of my least favorite comics that lasts like 20 and I, years and not just because of alex like to be clear to anybody who's listening this is volumes one and two by rick Remender. yeah the, re- the rest of it's good the rest of it's the fun. jim zub and jerry duggan stuff oh, in yeah. volume three is actually good yeah it's fun stuff's fun it's good I don't like the concept of the Uncanny Avengers to begin with, but if you would like to read an Uncanny Avengers book, Volume 3 is a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Volumes 1 and 2 and the Access event, I hate with just about everything. I've repressed most of Access. (laughs) Like, I cannot remember. I'm just like, I don't remember Access. I was fully stunned by how many details of Access I had managed to completely shove down a memory hole in the back of my, like, it's in the black bug room. Like Cassandra Nova put it deep in my head. Like it will only ever come out under the like darkest conditioning. Emma lobotomized it right out of me, and that's totally okay. It's like I was at the orphanage. Mr. Sinister suppressed it all, and now it's just coming roaring back. So before we get into the reader questions, a lot of which will be about those not so great havoc stories, I'd love to talk a little bit about your favorite havoc stories. What is the stuff you truly love? I really love Outback Era, which we already discussed. Yeah, I mean, that's my favorite era of the X-Men, period. Yeah, that's, like, great. Like, I think he's a little bit more sensitive and emotional and, like, not a shithead at all. I love his relationship with Madeline. Yeah. I mean, this podcast is well known as the Madeline Pryor Hour, but in particular, there's that one that Carrie Gamble does as a fill-in. Yeah. 
Madeline like is thinking about killing herself. Right, right. And he's he's out jogging. And he's out yeah. jogging in his little shorts. Right. And he's like sees her up on the cliff and he's like, Oh no, he's like, Madeline, you can't kill yourself. This can't right. be good. Whatever she's thinking about right. seems it's just this is not a great look, like on the edge of the cliff. And so she's he like, goes up. My life sucks, your life sucks. She's like, my life is fucking over, right. essentially. My baby's gone. I'm never getting my baby back. Right. My husband abandoned me. I have nothing. I was just in a coma for like four months because I got shot in the head by assassins for some reason who took my baby. I'm not a mutant. I don't have powers. Mm. There's nothing I can do. I can't protect myself when I'm like, I can't protect myself. I couldn't you. protect my child. Right. And because I made the decision to throw my lot in with you guys, because I decided I loved Scott, and I loved, therefore, the people who he loved. I can't just walk away from it. Everything that happens to you happens to me also. Mm-hmm. But I don't have the power. It's what leads into Fall of the Mutants. And then it leads into her great role in the Outback briefly mm-hmm. as the Candy Southern of their Defenders team. Right. The Sue Dibney of their Justice League. Woman in the chair. <laughs> yeah, woman in the chair with no powers running the comms, running the headquarters, which is really fun. And uh, unfortunately, it doesn't last very long before editorials like, and now please get rid of her. Um, <laughs> I really love that issue. And they have, like a, they have a firm friendship first, too. Like that, they do. That whole issue yeah. is just like a very like platonic, let's hug it out. He's just like, this is my sister-in-law. Yeah, absolutely. She has nobody else. Yeah. She has no one. And frankly, I'm appalled at my brother for right. doing this. Right. And my nephew's been kidnapped. And, like, this is his mother, and she doesn't know what happened to the baby, and she's flipping out. And my brother doesn't give a shit. Where is yeah, he? and my brother doesn't doing? give a shit, clearly. <laughs> and also, that's, like, right after Malice has possessed Lorna and tried to kill him. Right, so he's having a rough time. He's all fucked up, also. Like, he says that. He's like, listen, my girlfriend just tried to murder me. And then I had to, like, try to kill her. I failed, but, like, it's Right, I had to defend up. myself and try to kill her, yeah. and then, like... You know, and now I feel like shit. So yeah. no one's having a good day, Madeline. And she's like, okay, fine. And they like kind of yell at each other and then they hug and it's really sweet, honestly. That's a great issue. I love, like I said, all of his stuff in the Outback with Betsy. I love all of his weird angst about having killed the brood. I love that. Like all of, yeah. When the brood people turn back into the human host mm. and it's like, those humans were already dead, Alex, but like he can't. He just can't. Well, he even has issues killing robots. Like, he doesn't like yeah, killing he doesn't like killing or anything. He just doesn't... That is all a through line from the 60s. Mm-hmm. Because when he... In his very first story... And I love his 60s stuff, actually. Me too. I'm not yeah. big on... Like, I've, I'm not big on 60s X-Men generally, but it gets so much better under Roy Thomas. Mm-hmm. And particularly, it gets so much better once Havoc and Polaris are introduced. Yeah, I'm like, a big they really, of that era. That era of the 60s X-Men is really good, Mm. honestly. It's just that the X-Men was a failure by then, so it got canceled very shortly thereafter. (laughs) It's hard to turn a book around when it's not popular, Mm. you know? That's that's just it. And they didn't just do relaunches back then with like a They would just let it go 57 issues where it was just kind of like flipped. Yeah, they were like, well, all right. No one's really bought this for like, you know, 30 issues. So I guess we're just going to cancel it. My father has an interesting perspective on it, actually, because those were the issues that he started with as mm-hmm. a kid. Because he was born in 1960. So was my mom. So that was all all of that era. Yeah. When he first picked up the X-Men, it was when Alex comes in and then Lorna comes in. Mm-hmm. That's why I think of them as like auxiliary 05. Like when somebody says like the 05, I'm I like, I think of them as, an o- as kind of an 07. Yeah. yeah. I think it's kind of a ripoff that Alex and Lorna didn't get to time travel in the time travel kids era. Mm-hmm. 
Although it led to some interesting scenes for Alex and Lorna with I the time travel kids. I did love adult Alex with little Scott. <laughs> yeah, that was really good. That was, that was really good. And I liked adult Lorna training the O5 teens yes. with Magneto. Yeah. That was a good... That because in the 60s, she's the one who is the total wide-eyed, like, what Newbie. the fuck am I yeah, doing absolutely. person with the rest of them. Right. So it was kind of a nice role reversal for her. But yeah, I really like those characters and I do think that that's when that book really starts to get very good and my dad was like it was very confusing to me because I'm a child I'm reading it they've just introduced these two new characters it's gotten really really good and then suddenly it went into reprints and it was bad because they started reprinting stuff from the era where they're in the little school uniforms and it's like the Stan and Jack stuff that's not that good shockingly Mm. outside of the juggernaut arc and the sentinel stuff those are great stories but for the most part it's kind of dull my dad actually i remember now he says when he came in professor x had just died Mm -hmm. so it's that whole era where they're in college and like scott and gene are actually dating and they're all in their new costumes Mm -hmm. and then it went into reprints and they're all just like listening to this bald guy who tells them what to do and they're in little uniforms he was like it was boring he's like which was a bummer but then, you know, the giant size came out and it was great in 75. So they did relaunch it eventually. But Alex and Lorna were characters who, who suffered. But in those 60 stories, Alex's big struggle is he cannot control his powers. And whereas Scott, who has a similar struggle, has a pretty simple solution, which is like put on these sunglasses. It's like not ideal, but he can function in life. Like Alex has to wear that costume because like he's like the full body suit because he's constantly absorbing cosmic and atomic energy and if he doesn't he'll like turn into like a sun or like a black hole. he'll turn into like a bomb yeah. yeah he's the first character to really get that arc it's the same arc bobby has in 80s x factor where he needs the belt after loki mm-hmm. like boosts his power it is the same arc that rogue kind of has Mm -hmm. generally which is like i need to be sheathed in something or like i yeah i need like a full body condom or i'm gonna kill people you know (laughs) alex could take it off for a little bit here and there like he and lorna are clearly doing it and like he can wear like a civilian outfit to go to the mall or whatever but like for the most part he's in that costume all the time because otherwise he's gonna kill people right and so he spends all of his time really trying very hard not to kill people so then once he's like all right i'll actually join the x-men i'll be in like he he initially leaves the x-men because he almost kills bobby by accident when they're fighting over lorna well and they're not even really fight bobby's like being an asshole (laughs) like alex isn't really even being aggressive particularly he's just defending bobby's just being like super passive aggressive and shit about it yeah bobby's yeah bobby's just like why every time i come to look for lorna do i see you and alex is like i don't know because she gets to decide who she hangs out with because she's a human being bobby's like like, that sounds fake (laughs) and then like bobby gets in his face and alex like smacks him back and releases this burst of energy and bobby's almost killed and it like freaks this is during the period that the book is canceled so that's the first time that havoc and polaris leave the team because then they get kidnapped by the secret empire and the Mm x-men don't think to look for them that kind of sums it up right is it's like they just assume lorna must have found him and they decided to retire or whatever but they don't look into it and it's the 60s so nobody has like a cell phone so months later when they're like oh no we were kidnapped by the secret empire 
It's like, oh, sorry, kids. You know? <laughs> we didn't come look. For and then it's like, oh, why don't these two want to be X Men? I can't imagine, right? Like, why don't they have a healthy respect for? <laughs> why Charles do they Xavier? just want to like sit around and cook in their desert house all the time? They just want to get their PhD. They're busy. But so yeah, that's the through line because then once he finally sees the X Men, hears about what happened to Kitty and Kurt in the mutant massacre, mm-hmm. hears about what happened to the Morlocks, and they're like, listen. We need help. And you know too much now. So we're not sure what to do. He's like, all right, like, I've never wanted to be an X-Man. That was my brother's thing. But I'll do it. And he does. And then immediately he's forced to kill. And it really fucks him up, even though it's alien parasites that he kill. He just can't. Because all he can picture in his head is like, now I'm going to lose control again and again and again and again and again. And well, again and he again. doesn't even like breaking rules. Like at the very right. outset of like the pre-Outback era, like when he rejoins the team, he's like, what am I doing? I don't want to be seen. He's like, how will I explain this to Lorna? Yeah. And then, of course, he doesn't have to because right. she's been possessed while he was gone. Right. But it's really smart. And it runs really intelligently all the way through the Claremont period, in my opinion, because even if the Extinction Agenda twist like where he goes through the siege perilous and comes out as a Genosian apartheid right. magistrate. That is like the self he's afraid that he is. Right. Right? Like it's the full rejection of his mutant gift. It is someone who follows rules to the point that he becomes the cog of a fascist machine. Mm-hmm. When the siege perilous found him wanting, it was in that respect. It was like, you don't love yourself because you hate your mutant power because you're afraid of it. And you like being told what to do. So this is where I'm going to put you because this is what you deserve. That's a really hard thing. I'm not sure I feel like the stories that came after Claremont left ever appropriately handled that. No, I'm sure there's a question about this because I saw it on Twitter, but I just don't. I think after that, the immediate reaction was, well, let's make him a team leader and I just don't think he makes a good team leader. And there was nothing in the 80s where it was like, oh, I want to be a team leader. Like, he was no. always like, well, oh, whatever, you know, like. Storm is leader, and he yeah. was thrilled with it. Oh, yeah. He was like, everybody tell me what to do. And when Storm died, when yeah. Alex, notably, apparently kills Storm by well, accident. Nanny made him think so. Which I'm surprised that hasn't come up in Hellions yet. Where he's I like, know. I know. <laughs> I know. Although he might not know Nanny did that. That's true. That was a very confusing time for the X-Men. That's and true. it was like, he may not know that that was like a nanny scheme. But nanny probably knows. Oh, nanny oh, knows. Nanny she absolutely did that. knows. <laughs> but yeah, when nanny uses a decoy storm mannequin or something that's, I guess, very lifelike that she made to make Alex think he has killed a storm. He has like that whole mental breakdown then. He has too. a complete breakdown. Yeah. And then Betsy takes over. Yeah. And he's like, okay, are you bossing me around? She's like, yeah. And he's like, okay. <laughs> okay. He's like, I don't know about that. And she's like, just shut up and listen to me right yeah. now. And he's, he's like, like right. I'm listening. You know, like, right. It's like he, because that's the thing. Those characters are inclined toward leadership. Sure. He has never been that person. No. I mean, and you see it in 90s X Factor because over the course of it, basically the minute Peter David leaves that book, actually, Polaris becomes the leader of that yeah, team. Yeah, which is a lot more, makes a lot more sense. Absolutely makes a lot more she sense. She has like the daddy issues tied up with it too, where she's like, well, I kind of gotta, because like... Although she doesn't know he's her father, right. but it's always like a lingering doubt in the right. back of her mind, and it's like a whole thing. She's the one thrust into the public eye, who, and you know, she develops an eating disorder, she's very uncomfortable, she like hates be, having to be like professionally hot now. 
but she's also the one who like you know Corey and i talked about this in the lorna episode like she gives a speech right after the david run of x factor oh yeah and that's like the mirror to the terrible rick remender speech she gives a speech that is essentially the m-word speech right but in it she says i long for a world where these things don't matter but in the world that we live in now where they matter a great deal x factor is here to fight for mutant rights and this that and the other thing Mm -hmm. because she's always had the same complex i don't want to be a mutant i don't want to be a superhero i don't want this it was just done to me but she understands like even if she wants a colorblind world Mm -hmm. even if that's something that appeals to her she understands it's not the reality Mm -hmm. that she lives in and the problem with the m-word speech is that alex just doesn't seem to get it which he does in the 80s though that's Which the thing. Is the he whole does thing. in the eighties. Like the whole weird disconnect. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work for me with the character. And and I think that the only way you can really, well, we'll get into this in the reader questions because yes, yeah. people have lots of questions right, about right. that arc. Because if you say you're a Havoc fan, people are just like, well, what about Uncanny Man? I'm like, okay, we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> Because that's not his only like really shitty arc. No, I mean like there are so many shitty arcs from. PADX Factor through... I mean, I really... I don't like Rosenberg's Astonishing either, but that's like a weird little quibble that I have. I don't really have strong opinions about it, frankly. I know that that era of X-Men is not super popular. Mm -hmm. I just specifically have beef with that run. I really liked Dead Souls, although it was not great for Karma, which always is like a demerit in my book. I mean, mean, who does write her well? Literally until Vita Ayala's two issues that have come out, I don't think I've ever read a Karma story and been like, this is so good for Karma. I feel great about this. Well... Besides Wells. I mean, Wells did some stuff with her, at least. I was literally going to yeah. say, that was my yeah. next thought. Except yeah. for Zeb Wells' New Mutants, yeah. which is about this whole magic karma dyad for a lot of it. Yeah. It's about contrasting Danny and Sam and about contrasting Ileana and Sean. And that's amazing. That's why that runs great. And those are the four characters, frankly, that I want to dig into if we're doing a New Mutants sure. book. I think Bobby is hysterical, Bobby DaCosta, but... To me, he's not the most emotionally compelling character, I let's say. I don't like Hickman's Bobby. Oh, really? Hot take. I do not. He's very much like a little bit to eleven cartoony I in just, a way that I, I could see. If you're a fan of the character, what? I could see why it would be a departure that, as someone who's always been like, he's fine about the character, I'm enjoying it. But I get what you're Al saying. Al Ewing's Bobby is great. Like, he's like, what if Tony Stark, but actually good. And I'm like, all right, great. I'm hoping he will turn up in X-Corp because Teeny really I loves that you. character. Good, good, good. So She loves the hot rich boys, which I think is good. <laughs> she also just like, she loves all that 80s stuff the good. way that we do. I mean, you can tell from Excalibur, right. obviously, but I know that she loves Sunspot. So I'm hoping he'll turn up. To be clear to anybody listening, I don't know shit about X-Corp because Teeny is a professional. So like, you know, I work, I work with her on her non-comics work. So I don't have like insider info. Which I am wildly more interested in. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, but tell me about Teeny's prose. (laughs) Hopefully in your role as a bookseller, we can be talking about that sometime soon. But at the moment, right, people are just like, do you know what's going to happen in Excalibur? And I'm like, no, it's her job. And I'm not like, you know, that's so anyway, point is, I don't know if this is the case. But there are a couple of characters I would really love to see turn up at X-Corp and Sunspot is one of them. I would also love to see Karma mm-hmm. play a role. Because she's a billi- millionaire, billionaire. Her family is very wealthy. Yeah. She has all of those connections. And I think that that would be cool. 
it seems that Vita actually has a plan for her, which Thank is God. exciting. Yeah. So I think she's primarily going to be in New Mutants, but I would like to see her dip into X-Corp occasionally. I'd love to see Trinary show up. Mm-hmm. She would be great. Yeah, yeah, she has all that Wall Street stuff in yeah. her backstory, like Indian Wall Street, which I don't know the name of, but like that stuff where she's like redistributing wealth or right. whatever. I would just love to see a lot of characters like that. I'd love to see like a Gen X character or two. I don't even like Gen X particularly, but Monet doesn't hang out with them anymore ever. Right. Like, so it would be <laughs> nice to see like how those were like, what's Chamber up to? I don't know. Not a ton by all accounts. Yeah, he got to do like fuck all a new mutant. Yeah, or like, you know what? Since Unishion isn't on Sword, maybe she can be a bodyguard for X-Corp. Like, please put her somewhere. Besides Frenzy, she's my favorite acolyte, and she is nowhere. It's annoying. If Armor gets voted onto the X-Men, I demand that Unishion get an opportunity to be the exoskeleton <laughs> of the Six up on the Sword Station. Not to steal Skids' gig. Love that for Skids. Did you see the Modoc preview where Gwenpool talks to Skids? Because that was really fun. I didn't look at it. It's just fun because she goes, I mean, like, I'm not a big, like, Deadpool, Gwenpool, like, fourth wall characters. Mm-hmm. That's never been, like, my thing. I understand the appeal. It's just, like, not, it's just never been my, like, favorite thing. Right. But it's very funny because Skids is, like, kind of giving her shit in, like, a capacity as, like, a Krakoan ambassador. And Gwenpool's like, gee, I don't know, Skids, like, I was really looking up for you now, huh? Like, maybe if you're real lucky, Hickman will put you on a chart somewhere. And I was just like, ooh, that's funny. I also felt very scalped because, like, all I want is for my favorite obscure characters to pop up on charts. Like, I love that <laughs> shit now. When Alistair Stewart popped up on the data page in Excalibur, I gasped, even though it was, like, an alternate universe. And that Al Ewing org chart in Sword, where, like, all those people were listed. I was like, I love this chart with my characters' names on it that they will never have a line <laughs> again. But like, Amelia votes on the station. Love that for her. You know? I've been waiting to see her. So I was super pumped about that. Me too. I've been like, where is Amelia Vaught? Because Moira hates Amelia Vaught. And Amelia is so connected to Charles and Eric. Mm. If Krakoa is like Charles and Eric and secretly Moira, the fact that Amelia and Cortez were not mm. in it in the mix from the beginning, because like they tried to kill Moira. Right. If you recall. <laughs> I just think, I don't know. I would love that. I would love whenever Moira like reveals herself, I would love for just a like Charles's exes moment where like Amelia and Moira and Gabby Holler and like Eric just kind of sit down in a room. <laughs> And, like, hash stuff out and fuck shit about Charles. I think that would be really fun. As he deserves. As he deserves. But, yeah, no. So, I, I've i never felt, to go way back to what I think we were talking about, I've never felt like the Genosian magistrate thing, which was very traumatic for him, was carried through. Because I think Peter David slotted him pretty quickly back into, because he was the team leader, slotted him into this, I'm not as good as Scott thing. And I felt over the course of the 80s stories that he had kind of gotten through that. He definitely got away from the Scott stuff. And like, I just... Like, I feel like Madeline was kind of the resolution of that plot. Right. Like, at the end of Inferno, Scott's like, I fucked this up so bad. And Alex is like, okay, well, but like, I essentially sold my soul to her and tried to kill you. So we both kind of fucked this one up. Right. (laughs) And then they team up to apparently kill Mr. Sinister, who had tormented them as children. It's like, okay, that plot's now kind of handled. Mm -hmm. But no, they kept using it. For decades. But they just kept going back to it. Yeah. And I I think it's more interesting to distinguish them, you know? I mean, like, we joke online about, like, oh, the Summers brothers. But, I mean, 
I, yeah. And that's what makes Hellion so heartbreaking. Because the issue where Maddie's like, I don't really give a shit about you, except in relation to Scott. Yeah, which she says just to hurt him. Right, absolutely. Yeah, that's just like an emotional... That's not true. Right, that's just like an emotional dagger. I mean, that's also like, that's the most broken we've ever seen, Madeline. Right. Which it's it's brilliant. I'm a oh, Zeb yeah. Wells like I'm a I'm a Zeb Wells stan. Like don't get me wrong. Oh, and I trust him long term too, especially if he gets like oh yeah. I absolutely do too. I don't know if it's ever like here's the thing. She may never come back in his run, but it was the tone setter. And what's important about it is people always see Havoc and Polaris as a pair, and I understand that because they were introduced as one essentially, and they have been for most of their publication history. But I'm really glad that they're apart right now, and I really like that Polaris has not been mentioned once in Hellions because the core of Alex's problems in terms of how he sees himself and in terms of how like his romantic relationships have gone, it's all about Madeline. And so throwing that down at the beginning and being like, this is the thing we can do to fuck Havoc up most is really smart to me. Because if you go back to Mutant X after Lorna dumps him because he deserves it, mm-hmm. after he went undercover and tried to kill her almost. Like, right. you know, he, he didn't try to kill her, but would have if he had to because he was undercover or whatever in a not great storyline. No. Not a great storyline, his like brotherhood days, but you know, whatever. Point is, he did it. He apologizes. She doesn't really care that much about his apology and she dumps him. Then he, in issue 149 of Howard Mackey's X Factor, as a, someone with obsessive compulsive disorder, it makes me feel insane that they stopped at 149. But I get that, like, X Factor 150 is Mutant X1. Like, I get that that's, it's, it's, that's the idea, right? But that's not, they didn't keep the numbering consistently. So mm-hmm. it's just, like, very, I don't know, it aggravates me. But the point is, the world that he is thrust into, the alternate reality that is good for him, that he doesn't want to leave after a moment of, like, getting used to it is where he's the one where he's married to madeline and they have a child and scott's not around at all yeah except the kid's name (laughs) is scott (laughs) they named the kid scott yes but and alex who has just had the idea of scott the brother he lost instead of the whole thing looming over him never had to deal with Mm -hmm. that inferiority complex because there was never a cyclops to emulate right you know it's our Alex, so he has all of that baggage, but the world that he finds himself in is a world where Havoc is the great hero right. that everybody remembers and recognizes. And Marvel Woman is his beautiful wife. And their child is an adorable, lovely child. Now, the problem immediately is that their child is a Franklin Richards-style deus ex machina with vast telepathic powers. So he knows looks, that that's not his dad. He's who looks like, at him as like, you're not my dad. dad. You're not my dad. What happened? You're not my father. So that's an issue. You said that Mutant X was one of the early ones you were picking up. Oh, yeah. What are your Mutant X feelings? I reread some of Mutant X before this episode, and Mutant X is demented. Oh, it is. But it's so much fun. There's a reason they keep revisiting it. Like bringing characters in from it and whatnot. Because it's a very fun, much like Age of Apocalypse, which was a little bit earlier. It's a very fun AU Looking back, I really like it because it's not like a far future alternate universe. It's not like something like... It's not yet another Days of Future Past. Right. It's not something like that. It's just like an alternate, hey, Warren's Dracula. Beast is kind of fucked up. Bobby's really weird. Electra's a nanny. 
and it's Madeline instead of Jean, right? Yeah. Which is fun because you're like, what the fuck? Because you're like, what? How did this happen? Right. What is the story? And you get bits and pieces of it. One thing I love about it as like a Maddie head, and she's still the Goblin Queen. Yeah, I hate the Goblin Force, which right. is fucking stupid. <laughs> And luckily, at the end of it, Alex erases the Goblin Forest right. from all timelines. Right. So it's never existed and we don't have to worry about it. But that was stupid. However, I love the twist on Inferno, which is that with Alex as her husband, Maddie doesn't lose the child because he doesn't leave her. Right. And when the child is stolen by the demons to try and start Inferno, she makes her pact and becomes the Goblin Queen to save the child. Yeah. It's a great reversal of the original story. And it shows, to me, it lays the blame at Scott's feet in a way I found really Yeah, it's like, well, with Scott removed, what happened? It's like, well, if she had a husband who wasn't a complete ass, it's not in her. That's not who she is. She would never have done that if she wasn't in a bad situation that allowed her to be manipulated in a dream by demons. Like, otherwise, she would sacrificed her own life for her son because that's who she is so that's really good when i was a kid i liked it because i was like very basically alex is cool i don't really like scott and then now that i'm older i'm still like alex is still cool in it after she goes evil and is the goblin queen and all of that he has and it's fucked up because she's the nanny right (laughs) like looking back on it now as an adult i'm like "Mm." but (laughs) Electra and Alex have a fun kind of... Right. It doesn't really ever... I, I don't remember, actually. It might by the end, but I don't think it actually goes to, no, like, a really like romantic a place. It's just a, like... Flirtation. Wouldn't this be... Right. And she is, like, a ninja assassin. Like, yeah. they clearly hired her as their nanny because... It's like Callisto being Moira's bodyguard in right. the 80s. It's like, I'm gonna hire someone really competent to protect this person who can't protect themselves. It's not like she's just, like, an au pair who's, like, right. 20 or something. It's not, like... It doesn't feel gross. But it is sort of like, she's your employee. Please don't flirt with the nanny. But they're cute. It's like it has it. But the end resolution of it is him. Well, in the middle, there's that moment where he can go back. He's offered the opportunity to go back. And he decides not to. And he decides not to because he loves his son. And he's like, why do I want to go back to the world where Lorna has told me we're done forever? I constantly live in Scott's shadow and no one respects me. Like, I'm going to stay. And he chooses to stay. And the end of it is him sacrificing his life to save Maddie the way he couldn't in the real timeline, Mm -hmm. expunge her of the demonic influence and reunite her with their son. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I have to go now. I can't stay. I've used all my power to do this. I'm discorporating or whatever. I've become the nexus of all realities. Oh yeah. All that shit. They've (laughs) since dropped. That's a big dwy. But you know, I have to go now, but I I know you two will be together and will be okay. I'm glad they've never, as far as I know, revisited those characters. They haven't. Because I do like to think that Madeline and little Scotty are doing okay in that world. And even when they brought in Bloodstorm, it was an alternate Bloodstorm from Mm -hmm. like a similar timeline, but it wasn't Wasn't the actual Mutant X timeline because they don't want to fuck with it. Mutant X, it's hard for some people to understand this because it's such a weird little digression now when you look back, but it was supposed to be a 12 issue maxi. And then it was so popular. And it was so popular. 
so popular it ran for 32 issues so there was a moment when people really were into havoc it was like a havoc moment that did happen all it took was removing him from our earth and creating an entirely new world built around him but it was a world where he felt comfortable being a superhero where he felt comfortable being himself and it was funny because he was living another man's life but i mean he switches places essentially because the alex on that earth is killed at the same time that he he's also a shithead (laughs) yeah yeah well that's the other thing is like it turns out the alex of the mutant x world is kind of a douche so like you're not my dad but you're better than my dad was right my favorite is when he tries to tell them all like this isn't my earth. I'm an alternate Alex from another dimension and we need to send me back. They're just like, listen, I know you and Madeline are fighting right now, but this is a very immature thing to be doing. This whole like farcical thing. I don't thing like you're this doing. Just Yeah. Like this is like, like an adult. <laughs> please be an adult about your marital troubles. And like, you know, and we never, I don't think we ever find out what he and Madeline were fighting about. I don't, because once our Alex slots in, they stop fighting. Because right. he's just like, this is awesome. <laughs> like, <laughs> he's like, I'm married to this woman who I actually really loved, who something terrible happened to. And we have a, a kid. Holy shit. You know? And especially once he meets the Scott of that world, who's fine. Like, became a space pirate, is doing great. Mm-hmm. Then it's like, now I don't even have to feel guilty. It's not like Scott died. You know? Right. So it's a fun, it's a fun thing. And then, of course, he gets shunted out of that world directly into the Chuck Austin run, which is... Which is a lot. Brutal. For everybody. (laughs) Particularly brutal for him. Polaris is the one who gets the sexist storyline, but like I said, it's at least kind of fun and interesting and gave her, like, stuff to do. Like, if if Lorna was an actress, or, like, if if it was a live-action TV show, and the actress who plays Lorna and had been playing her since the 60s got that arc, we'd be like, finally... So-and-so is getting some meaty stuff to really dig her teeth into. It's the first time since that Doc Samson psychiatry issue. You know, like, because for so long she had, I mean, she would have won an Emmy for that issue in Genosha in New X-Men. And then we would have been like, and now, oh, they're beefing up her part. Good for her. You know, it's a sexist storyline. But of all the women going crazy that I've ever read in a Marvel comic, it's the most fun and did the most to actually push the character forward in a way that was productive because making her it was a lot less shitty than all of the pad lorna's going crazy shit which he continued into all new x factor like he was on that train for like two decades that's really what drives me crazy about when she goes back to x factor is and especially because she and alex break up because he's like i feel like we're regressing and she's like don't make this about us when it's you're feeling this way and i'm like but he's right actually because She's just as crazy as she was in the Chuck Austin run, except all of the political awakenings that she had, where she's like, I am Magneto's daughter, Magneto was right. All of the really interesting stuff that spun out of it, David completely writes out to take her back to the politics she had in the 90s when she was an assimilationist. And the interesting thing was taking the assimilationist character and making her a radical. It's what Bendis then does with Cyclops. Right. That whole era, which is not my favorite, but has... It's just not to my taste. It's good. There's a lot of great stuff in it. I just like don't care that much about the O5, so it's not my like wheelhouse. But Cyclops is the best served character in that era, besides Teen Jean Grey, in my opinion. So like that's the story Lorna could have had if anyone mm-hmm. had cared to tell it. 
And then it could have been like her and Alex having difficulty over that rather than Scott and Alex having difficulty over that. Instead of Lorna disappearing into all new X Factor. Instead of Lorna disappearing into a book that by that point people were not really crazy about. I mean, you know, obviously the Peter David X Factor investigations, like his his return to X Factor was enormously popular for a very long time. It ran for 100 issues. Like, Mm -hmm. but by that point, it picks up again when she comes in because it shakes up the team. Right. But and Alex is on the team for a little bit, too. For a minute. Yeah. Avengers. Yeah. Yeah. And then it just kind of it just kind of falls on its face. It's somewhere around the Morrigan. It fully loses me. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad Leah's tying that plot up because it's a plot that it's hard to just pretend never happened. Right. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm just like the hell lords, all of that stuff. I just know. The biggest thing for Alex there is, yeah, he decides finally because of Avengers versus X-Men and because of Scott going off the deep end, in his opinion, he decides, okay, I guess I do have to be a superhero. Like, it's an opportunity almost to become the Alex of Mutant X. And he tries, but he's not good at it. Like, he had to be given Mutant X. He had to just wake up as that Alex. He can't actually get himself there right are there any others you really love i mean you like the space stuff what do you love about the i do i mean i just love it because i love cosmic marvel and i love x-men stuff so it was a good time to see like crystal be bitchy with lorna and i do have a new appreciation for crystal since i read claire napier's piece on women writing about crystal opinions are the best like she's absolutely right like Crystal sucks and Crystal's a bitch and she's petty and she cheats and she should. And I love it. Absolutely. Right. Like I, I would love actually now to read like, you remember that terrible book, Marvel Divas? Oh, I do. I would love a relaunch <laughs> of Marvel Divas that was about Crystal yes. and her friends and was like a Real Housewives riff. That would be really fun. Yeah. So my thing with Marvel Cosmic is I've never been a big Avengers person. I just haven't. My dad and my uncle had some of the 80s stuff in the attic. So I read those and I loved Monica Rambeau, who then... Me too. She's still my Captain Marvel. Mine too. My Captain Marvel, except no substitutes. I'm glad the whole world is getting to know her via WandaVision. But I was just talking about this on Twitter, like the way that Mark Grunewald just like wrote her out so viciously Mm -hmm. because he didn't like her. It's just leaves a bad taste in my mouth about the whole 90s run of the Avengers. I loved her. I thought Mantis was really fun, except like looking back... It's like racially not the best, but I was a child who was white. So I didn't really pick up on all of the Asian stereotyping with that character. So like the Celestial Madonna stuff Mm -hmm. I read with her and Moondragon. And then I read the big crossovers in the 90s, the Mm -hmm. Jim Strong crossovers, like Infinity Gauntlet, Infinity War, Infinity Crusade. I loved those, but I never really got into it outside of that. Like, I didn't read as it was coming out the Abnett Lanning Guardians. Relaunch. See, and I read all that because I just, like, gave up on Civil War. I was like, it's either Civil War or Annihilation. Fair. So I was like, I'm going to do fair. Annihilation. That's around when I totally left Marvel for a while because I was so mad about oh, the decimation. Fair. Yeah, that's when I, like, started dropping X-Men stuff. I was like, I don't really care. X-Men was all I really cared about. Mm-hmm. And so I was so upset about the decimation that I just stopped reading Marvel for a long time. Like I would, I would dip in and out and be like, what's going on? I'll read this month. I'm like, still hate this. And you know, like I think the Mike Carey run is one of the best runs of the X-Men, but everything around it is so, or like the Zeb Wells new mutants. Like I love those runs, but all of the decimation utopia stuff, I just 
don't like conceptually. So that's just like messy for me, right? But yeah, so I wasn't reading when like Annihilation and all that happened and then it seemed very confusing to jump back in. So like I never really It did, did kind of like relaunch all of it. So there were like, well, like 500 miniseries that tied in. Someone sent me like a reading list because I'm, I'm interested in seeing what Ewing is up to. I love Al Ewing. Well, and a lot of his stuff follows on all of that old yeah. Celestial Madonna. So I feel like era. I should go back. Right. And like read the Annihilation stuff. A lot of the point. art is super shitty, it's but a lot aughts. of it is super worth it. Like the Nova Solo is amazing. I was just talking about how my Abnett and Lanning thing that I love is the Amanda Sefton miniseries from 2000, which no <laughs> one can find. Everyone's like, that's a thing? And I was like, yeah. And everyone's like, okay, it's not on Marvel Unlimited. It hasn't been collected in trade. I'm like, well, it's a four issue miniseries about Amanda Sefton with terrible art because it was 2000. So, right. like, no, I'm, I'm not shocked that this hasn't been collected. You know, actually, since it's called Magic and Ilyana has become really popular now again, like she's become so prominent mm-hmm. since the Bendis era, it wouldn't be like it would be deceptive, but it wouldn't be a bad idea to put the Magic miniseries out in trade that's about Amanda Sefton because people would buy it thinking it was about Ilyana. Sure. So maybe they should do that. I... And then it would be on Marvel Unlimited and people could read it because yeah. the writing is great. And Amanda Sefton is an underrated queen. I understand that she's fucking her brother and it's weird. But in that miniseries, she and her brother, they're adoptive siblings. It's still weird. It's still very weird. <laughs> he was never formally adopted. Not it's quite as bad. Weird. It's still very weird. It's still very weird. But in that miniseries, they're like fighting the legions of hell together and it's fun. So you you were into the cosmic stuff already. And then it was like, here are the X-Men. Right in space yeah. so that's fun yeah i think for me i love havoc and polaris so i was tempted to get into it but i really hated deadly genesis and i was not into all the vulcan and that's stuff. totally fair i didn't dig any of that at all but like as soon as it was like okay we're doing star jammers and we're gonna have ronin and like vulcan, sure yeah crystals here oh they're going to the wedding that's like the big deal between the inhumans and the Kree. the crystal and ronin wedding is really smart beat it would have been better if it had been a claire napier style crystal who like just did it for the attention but crystal was still kind of petty because she like ronan overhears them talking and she's like i think he's ugly and he gave me these flowers and i just like and he's like oh i'm sad just like throws the flowers away and she's like "Ah." i just would have loved it if like instead of like i'm going to unite the realms it was just like i love power so i'm going to marry ronan (laughs) the accuser like that would have been fun no that's fair yeah, my biggest problem, though, with that era is that I'm a big Rachel Summers guy. And, and I am, too. And I just, it doesn't, it's a lot of more of that. The entire Rachel Gray period, yeah. I hate. I hate pretty much everything. End of Gray is actually, I think, is good. Like, the specific storyline where they all die around her. like right. And Elaine is just as horrible as ever that Claremont did, I think, is good. But everything else from the moment that she came back in 2000 through... Claremont. I mean, it's fun when she and Kitty are like pretty gay at the end but of it. But then extreme. she has to like weirdly like date men and it's like kind of weird. But then she weirdly dates men. She puts on a little yeah. mini skirt. She starts calling herself Marvel Girl to honor her mother when it's like, your mother was Phoenix, not Marvel Girl, right. first of all. Also, you would never wear this in I a thousand years. I do love that era though because I do love her and Alex's dynamic because they're like almost the same age at that point. Yeah, which like, is weird, with, like, right? Because it's like her, sliding time scale. And she's like, this niece. is my cool uncle. Yeah. And I feel like of all of the Summers clan, Alex is the most one who would be like, fist bump, lesbian, love that, good for you, let's go to a bar. I feel like Alex 
broing out with Rachel is something we should see more yes. of. I would enjoy that, especially now that they're living together in the summer house. Like that would be fun. And especially now that like Rachel's allowed to be gay again. Like they, they haven't said it on page, right. but she feels pretty fucking gay. That's just my thing is like as a huge fan of like 80s soft butch lesbian queen Rachel Summers, the like very weird pod person that was rachel gray is just not my no totally i'm just like very like hashtag not my rachel right all the way up until like very recently (laughs) so i'm just very relieved she's back but the star jammers period that sort of because like i couldn't just enjoy havoc and polaris stuff because here's rachel and she's fucking a shiar guy no and that's that's really he has the phoenix sword so that's why I do like, though, like, as part of my, like, lesbian agenda right, with right, Rachel, like, right. she even says, like, the way they, the reason they break up is she's like, I think I'm just attracted to the fact that you're connected to the Phoenix. Right. And, like, we don't <laughs> actually have any connection because it's like, yeah, because you're not into men. Exactly. So it doesn't make any sense right. that you, I mean, that's just a Claremont problem that, like, then Brubaker picks up, which is that, like, Claremont doesn't have lesbian characters. He only ever has, like, bisexual women right. characters, even though with Rachel, like, she's just fucking gay or Callisto like she's just fucking gay but they need to have like a moment where it's like ah but here's my male love interest for a minute it's like no you don't they can just be gay like since you have seven overtly bisexual female characters like one of them could just be a lesbian so I do understand where Callisto is coming from kidnapping Warren like what twice I I I feel like you and Callisto must have a really (laughs) deep soul connection as cool chicks with eye patches who love Warren Worthington. I think it's fair. Yeah. Like, I, I want to duel slash marry Aurora, but also I will kidnap him. You have definite Callisto energy in a way that I approve of because I'm a big Callisto fan. I mean, that first story where she does kidnap Warren is not great. I like to think <laughs> that she was, I don't know, going through it or something. <laughs> <It doesn't... laughs> Having a time. <laughs> She's never been more prominent than she is now in Marauders, and I'm oh, very, yeah. very excited. She's doing great in Marauders. I am so excited to see where that's all going. There's that cover that's been solicited. I mean, all the Daughterman covers are stunning, mm-hmm. but the one where it's like... Her and Bishop lounging. Kate doing like a very like butch leg spread thing, and then Callisto and Bishop just like like sort of posing like, mm-hmm. and we're here and we're hot. It's like very... That's like the Marauders book yes. I want is like that exact vibe vibe. plus like emma in the background like moving chess pieces like that's the marauders i want i would also like to see pyro revisit his gay romance novelist characterization from the 80s yes the current pyro is very fun but the pyro of the 80s for those of you who haven't read the 80s stuff was a heavily implied to be gay sort of sensitive soul who was a funny australian guy but also under a female pen name was a very successful romance romance novelist. novelist Yeah. Which is extremely funny to me. Yeah. And you could marry that to the characterization now. It could be his hidden depths. It would just be really funny. Jerry, if you're listening, just I would love to see that come back. <laughs> just saying. To to circle back. So that was just my thing with the space stuff was just that I was like, why am I being subjected to like 16-year-old heterosexual Rachel Gray? I don't like this at all. And that's fair. And Vulcan. It was like simultaneous Rachel Gray and Vulcan. So I was just like, no, not for me. I think with me, it highlighted the fact that Alex isn't a good leader, but he's not a good leader in contrast to Scott, just because that whole scene with Vulcan, when Vulcan captures them and Lorna's like, Mm -hmm. why don't you just fucking go for it? And he's like, because you'd all die. And I don't let anybody on the team to die. And she's like, well, you're stupid. He's like, well, yeah, I know that. Um, But we're all just going to be taken prisoner instead. 
which he doesn't have like, the stomach to make yeah, those decisions he does not the way that actually finish the mission. Storm and Scott no. are able to do that. Right. He's not going to make those hard choices. Storm more so, but Scott by the end of the Utopia period certainly right. has hardened in that way. Or I would say even Morris and Scott has right. that capability. Yeah. Alex is not going to make those hard leadership decisions. Alex can't do that. Yeah. Lorna can, right. which is why she ends up kind of backseat driving for a lot of that arc, right. which is also, which that part's fun. I mean, I think that their dynamic in it is fun and it's an attempt to repair all of the chuck austin damage to their relationship right which is why i liked it like i mean i was what i was in college when that was going on so i was like okay finally i can read this again and enjoy this because that is a ship that i love oh same 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 and i do think that in the end of the day they should end up together Mm -hmm. but i think if scott and gene are together there's absolutely no fucking reason well I don't think Scott and Jean should be together. I, so. I also don't think so. But like, I think if that is the case, then there's absolutely no reason why Alex why and Lorna shouldn't Lorna find their way back to yeah. each other. I mean, I I don't know. We'd be here all day if we got into my jot feelings. I just talk about a regression. Like to me, I fully can't fathom them back together. It does not make sense to me. But the, you didn't like the ass grab kiss at the end of Rosenberg's Uncanny Run? I did not. I did not like that. Um, yeah, I did not care for that. I did not care for that. Yeah, I would <laughs> just, just, yeah. I'm interested to see what Hickman is planning with them because it's very clear to me that there is a very distinct plan, it feels like. Mm-hmm. But right now, I don't buy them back together. The Wolverine of it all helps. That helps me buy it. Plus the, like, hints that Scott and Emma are still fucking. Like, there are things that make it work for me a little better. When you put in the Madeline stuff, it definitely feels like a, we're happy, why fuck it up? Like, let's just kind of roll with it, live on the moon, whatever, don't rock the boat, try to make it work. Yeah, I just, like, I don't know, the idea of them as, like, happy and domestic together, I just don't quite, I don't buy it. Frankly, I need to, I, I don't buy for Gene. I need to understand more of where Gene's head is at. Mm-hmm. And I'm hopeful that we will get that as mm-hmm. the story continues. I trust the long-term storytelling in the current era. So I'm like trying to stick with it. I trust the writers. So I'm just sticking with it. But that has been one sticking point for me is I'm just like, I don't get these two back together. It doesn't work for me. That's fair. But anyway, now is perhaps a good time to segue into questions. We got... A lot of these. Okay. I am not going to be able to read them all. So if I don't read your reader question, <laughs> listener question, I call. So this is just just a shout out. My friend Laramie Shane Halls has a podcast called Sex Unique Podcast. It's about reality shows. But she calls her listeners readers. And I have listened to that podcast for years. And so the combination of it, I'm talking about comic books that people read. And so I'm talking about readers of the comics. And also the fact that that's in my brain. I cannot help but just keep, I keep calling my listeners <laughs> readers. So anyway. Reader question. If I don't read yours, it's not that it wasn't good. It's that I literally just like, we got a lot. Allison's a popular gal. She has a robust social media presence that people enjoy. And people also apparently have a lot of thoughts about Alex Summers. So first question, Josiah Hickey writes, have we ever seen Alex regret the uncanny Avengers M word speech? If not, do you think he actually would, or should I keep trying to forget about it while it lurks in the corner of my memories to pop back up when I least expect it? I think he would regret it. I think so, too. Immediately you see in Hellions, 
that whole scene in the first issue. Yes. Where he's like, fuck humans. That's, yeah, fuck that. Yeah. I think that what happens to him over the course of Uncanny Avengers, and I don't think this was Remender's intention, because we all know that Remender thought the speech was great. I mean, he ends up regretting it. That whole end scene with Scott, when he's like all scarred up, and he has the Correct. face and he's like, fuck Captain America, you guys have manipulated me. The world shows Alex yeah. that that was a naive thing to believe. Yeah. He's like, you used to, me as a mouthpiece, a I don't appreciate it. Right. Yeah. And I don't think Remender planned it. But whatever. That way, no. But I think that by the end of Uncanny Avengers, Alex realizes that the speech was dumb. He has never addressed it on panel explicitly. I wouldn't mind seeing him and Kate talk about it sometime mm-hmm. because Kate, of course, has the great rebuttal monologue that Bendis gave her. And at this point, I do think writers would be kind enough to Alex to be like, uh, he doesn't... I laughed out loud at the most recent issue of X Factor. There's just that one bit where um, <laughs> they're they're just interviewing people all around the island about like, have you seen Siren doing anything weird or whatever? Call me Alex. Mr. Summers is my brother. Call me Alex. <laughs> and call me Alex is the M word speech quote. So I thought that was a funny That was nod. very good. And the whole project of Hellions to me seems to be... In addition to all of the really robust work that Zeb Wells is doing at showing the cracks in Krakoa and the sort of darker underbelly to this whole premise, and then the really strong character work that he's doing with Kanon and Grey Crow. Kanon, mm-hmm. I think, has become one of the most exciting characters in the line, mm-hmm. which I was a revanche fan in the 90s. Me as well. I was already a mark. I'm excited. She's always been cool. But it's really fun to see her, like, getting to be a major... Ex- like, getting to be Psylocke, mm-hmm. frankly. It's fun. It's just as much fun as it is for me to see Betsy be Captain Britain. I'm really, really loving both of those character turns. In part because Zeb Wells is writing... Like, I, I was not crazy about Fallen Angels. And I think that Hellions is sensational. So it- the fact that you could make me sympathize at all with Grey Crow is shocking. So that's, you know, that's been well done. But apart from that stuff, the core project of Hellions seems to me to be, we need to fix Alex. Like, this character has been destroyed. Well, also not ignoring any of the shit that's happened. Like, I think and it doesn't the, ignore, yeah. it doesn't ignore any, right. it doesn't ignore Axis, it doesn't ignore Uncanny Avengers, right. it doesn't ignore any of the stuff, it doesn't ignore, like, the Mother Vine Christ, like, right. all of that stuff happened. Alex is fucked up about it. How do we fix this character? How do we take him to a place where people will root for him again? And I think so far it's succeeding. I mean, it it helps again that I'm inclined to. Right. I'm a little biased, but... But the book's very popular. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that it's... I mean, the fact that, like, everyone who reads Marvel comics now knows who Nanny and the orphan maker are. Mm-hmm. It's hysterically funny to me. Like it's breakout star of 2020 Nanny <laughs> who would have thought, but it seems like the project of it is to rehabilitate Alex. So if the M word speech is going to come up textually again, my guess is it will be in the pages of Hellions. Yeah. Cause he's reckoning with sort of all of the bad decisions he's made. Zach Rabaroff of comics XF writes, Hey, Connor. Hey, Allison. Look at that. Two of my favorite comic book commentators just hanging out in a podcast together right at the same time. What are the odds? Allison, remember the old days when we used to write about Jonathan Hickman's New Mutants and kept hoping it would just turn into a Deathbird and Karma road trip movie and somehow the rest of the world never went along with us? What an age that was. That would have been cool. I'm sad that didn't happen. There's still time. 
Anyway, here's my question for you both. Alex Summers is sad. This is not a question. This is a fact. And his hallmark characteristic as a human being. He is sad even though he is hot. He is sad even when he is in a relationship. He is sad when things are going poorly and when things are going well. So here's what I want to know. What, if anything, do you think would make Havoc happy? What does the ideal satisfied life of Alex Summers actually look like? Or is there something about his very nature that makes him fundamentally incapable of experiencing joy? And if so, why is that the case? Clinking a wine glass to you both, Zach Rabaroff. What do you think about that? I think that was an interesting question. Honestly, and this was before the whole Krakow era, but I... was hoping that he and Lorna would get to be teachers or something Mm. like that. Something where they don't have to be in the field. They don't have to deal with any of the weird team bullshit. Alex doesn't have to kill anybody or almost kill anybody. It doesn't have to make any hard decisions like that. If he has to be involved with the X-Men at all. But I think honestly, to be like really happy, he doesn't involve himself with the X-Men stuff at all. Which now is kind of impossible. Because of the nature of Krakoa, right? Yeah, he'd work best as a civilian on Krakoa. Which is like... I think that obviously he needs to get off the Hellion situation. Right. I think Emma's right, though, that this unconventional therapy is good for him. Yes. In some sense. He's feeling more heroic. His rapport with Psylocke is making him feel grounded. It's a fun dynamic, him and Kanon, because, again of how terrified he was of Betsy in the 80s. And if he's terrified of Betsy in the 80s... Then he's absolutely going to be He's absolutely shitting himself every time he talks to Conan. So I think that's really fun. And if it's just that, like, maybe just, like, not being a leader. Like, they just do not need to do that at all with him ever again. Yeah, no, they don't need to do that with him ever again. I mean, here's the thing that's really real. I think that Alex would be happiest with Madeline. A lot of things would have to be different from how they are now for that to happen. <laughs> but Yeah. See, and I think he would be happy with Lorna or Madeline. I think he would be happy with either of them. But I think that he and Lorna have been through such a ringer. And I'm not sure that Lorna would be 100% happy with him. So That's more my concern right. with them. Is like, Lorna is not necessarily happiest with Alex. And frankly, like the female character just always takes precedence for me in anything. That's just how I am. I don't know that Madeline would be happiest with Alex, except she kind of was, Mm -hmm. you know? And, and she realizes that kind of towards the end when she's dying in Hellions. Yes. She's like, Oh, you actually gave a shit. You actually love me. Shit. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. It's also one of the most interesting things about the beginning of Inferno, the very beginning after she has already lost her soul and it's too late, she and Alex finally get together and he's sleeping and she is about to go talk to Nastir on the computer console. But before she does, she looks at him and she's like, should I envy you your dreams or do you envy me the fact that I have none, which I love. I think it's a great line. And then she says, I could save you, but it's better that I don't. Which is actually also what Lorna, possessed by malice, says to him mm-hmm. earlier. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a beat that keeps happening to him. But I love it because I think she means it. Like, she wishes she could, but it's too right. late now. She doesn't realize that she is happy with him and that they actually should be together. Like, she doesn't get it. Until it's too late because she's already been seduced by the demons in her dream. Right. And then by the time he's the goblin prince, she's fully gone round the bend, lost all of her conscience and everything. But I think that if you could get her 
back to herself, to the real her before she was the Goblin Queen. And you could get him to the place he was in the 80s or even the early 90s. Mm -hmm. You could tell a really interesting, mature story with those two characters. Mm -hmm. Because you're never going to be fully out of Scott's shadow if you're dating his ex-wife, who's his wife's clone. Right. There's that. But if you accept, I don't care anymore about whether or not I'm in Scott's shadow. I love this woman. I just think that that could be a really healthy place for him. I wonder if they have to go back around to that again. Because, I mean, we talked about, like, they got him out of that in the 80s. And then they yeah. just looped right back to it. So is that something that they have to do all over? I kind of think they do. Like, because they threw him back into it. So I feel like he has to get back out of the, right. I'm not my brother. And Hellions 4, like, thing. pretty much threw them right back into that. With Yeah. Yeah, like, that was, like, exactly the thing. Much like in his New Mutants run, where Zeb Wells, to me at least, did a lot of work to fix Karma, a mm -hmm. character who I think has been very disrespected. And magic. Yeah, I mean, the problem there is, like, Zeb Wells' magic is my favorite magic that anyone has ever mm -hmm. written. Likewise. Oh, no, same here. Beyond the original 80s stuff, which I'm same obsessed here. with. The problem is just that that's not the character she is anymore. Right. Like, she got her soul back, and now she's nicer, and we just have to accept that, right. I guess. No, so she's a shimbo, and she can't count, and that's fine. She's outrageously popular, and I love to see it, so that's fine. And when they let her be mean, it's fun. But the complete sociopath magic of the Zeb Wells New Mutants run is incredible. That moment where Karma's just like, oh my god, you planned this whole thing. She's, she's like, like mm -hmm. obviously. Of course I did. <laughs> But yeah, to me, it felt like that run was concerned with a couple different things. And like the two characters that I think it really was concerned with rehabilitating were Karma, who had just been so, you know, even in the classic New Mutants run, she's barely in it. She mm -hmm. gets written out very quickly. And when she is, it's like weirdly fat phobic and like all that extremely weird bullshit. When she is, it's Claremont at his worst. And most, like, Orientalist. Yeah, I would say most self-indulgent. Yeah. Where it's, like, Orientalist and has fetishistic right. elements to it. Like, the body transformation stuff and, yeah. like, things like that. As a Claremont fan, like, there's stuff he does that I'm not crazy about. And as someone who spent many years as a very fat person, all of that stuff is not my favorite. Right. <laughs> no, no, totally. I'll tell you that for free. Don't love that storyline. And then she was like a teacher for the Academy X kids, but it was really, that was really Danny's right. book. Like she was more of a supporting character. So it finally felt like a book about her, which was awesome to see. And then Danny, who had been thrown into the garbage with the decimation, mm -hmm. he spends a lot of time, like Danny without her powers in that New Mutants run is fucking awesome. He spends a lot of time digging into her psychology. I find the flirtation between her and sam bizarre but it also makes sense as like we're back together with our friends from high school and there's a weird vibe like that happens that and, like, should be the energy for like yeah, yeah and they got it out of their system and we've never revisited again right. and like i think that's fine like they should just never mention it ever again as long as they live but got it out of their system that's fine with me so similarly i feel like this run of hellions is concerned with much like with Karma, establishing a little bit a character who up until now has mostly just been Orientalist tropes and has never really gotten interiority mm -hmm. with Kanon. And then 
rehabbing a character that was basically thrown in the garbage right. with Alex and with Wild Child, actually, because that's a character who like I don't enormously care because I'm not like a big Alpha Flight person, mm-hmm. but that character got junked. Mm-hmm. He and Aurora both in the 2002 Weapon X series, oh, which God. is yeah, execrable, it's fucking terrible. Those characters have just been sort of in the trash ever since. And Grey Crow. I mean, like, immediately just, like, changing his code name. Yeah. Oh, know? absolutely. Like, well, just... that, 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 yeah. That, I think, came from people reaching out to Marvel after the Hellions solicits mm-hmm. and being like, what the fuck is this character this? cannot yeah. be called Scalp Hunter in 2020. Right. We can't have this. Uh, and then being like, you know what? You're right. Excellent point. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, like, that is a code name that is no longer acceptable, and we're going to change it right now and no one's even going to address it in the comic mm-hmm. we're just going to pretend that was never a thing don't worry about it and i think that was wise but yeah no so i'm i'm hopeful i really am hopeful i i think that it's a good time to be an alex fan which has almost never been true certainly has never been true since i was about five years old it's almost always terrible online like you're just like the whipping person for twitter oh yeah because they're just like you like have it yeah and then they're like wait do you mean it ironically is this like a joke and i'm like no I, it's like I no like i actually love really him. love him and want the best for him <laughs> right no i know it's a mess it's an absolute mess i think that to be happy he needs to complete the 80s arc of realizing he doesn't have to compare himself to scott anymore mm-hmm and also accept himself as a mutant and love himself for who he is. And I think that that will involve addressing the Uncanny Avengers material on page. Mm-hmm. I think that we just haven't gotten to that point in his redevelopment yet. But I think that they will. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And for him, again, I don't know if it's what would make Madeline happiest, much like with Lorna. But I do think that for him, that relationship, bizarrely, given how it ends and given the context of how they meet, is probably the healthiest romantic relationship he ever has. And I almost wonder if Mutant X kind of gave that relationship the closure already. But it's a lot like how he had the closure with how he felt about Scott, and then they brought it back. Because now I think right. with what just happened in Hellions, it's all back. That's just the cyclical shitty nature That's of comics, comics, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. So... But I also, what I like about it is, like, we saw in Mutant X the lengths to which he would go to save Madeline. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that in his own natural timeline that he's from... He is incapable. He cannot save her. And it's driving him crazy. Right. I think that's good. Right. I think that's a good My big question with that is, is Mystique going to use him in the future? Because, I mean, they both got the same beef and... I want my wife back. Yeah, absolutely. And what? She's going to show up and he's going to be like, all right, well, just like, tell me what to do. (laughs) I also want my wife back. I keep waiting for, like, the evil chair spin scene where he, like, walks back into his room and Mystique's there on the moon. And he's like, shit. <laughs> yeah. And, like, little Gabby is sitting in the corner. Yes. Like, she's rights. like, I'm also here for the clone club. <laughs> I'm here for clone rights. <laughs> that is a character I had no attachment to whatsoever. But now that she is Maddie's sole advocate on Krakoa besides oh, Alex, I will defend her to my dying breath. I love breath. the implication that Alex has talked to... Yana and Gabby separately about this, probably yes. in the lagoon, and he's just been yes. like, I'm drunk and crying and really sad Alex about it. Alex has not shut up about this <laughs> for a minute. Everyone on Krakoa, like, that's the thing is, if Gabby knows about that, mm-hmm. everyone on Krakoa knows about it. Because oh, Madeline absolutely. never showed up on Krakoa, only the Hellions knew about that. Right. So Alex is telling everyone. anyone who'll listen, which I love. And Ileana's already come up with an excuse, and Gabby was like, mm, yeah. 
the council's like, this is shush shush. And Alex is like, it's not. Like, I'm I'm telling everyone about this. I'm telling everybody because this is fucked and they're all going to, everyone's going to know about it, right. actually. <laughs> Big mistake. Huge. Like, everyone's going to know. <laughs> Garrett Rooney writes, Hi, Connor and Allison. Havoc is a fascinating character for a whole variety of reasons, but one of my favorite things about him is the much lampooned fact that he's never able to finish his dissertation. Do you think the superheroes who want to live a more normal life but are never able to do so are more interesting, more relatable, a suspension of disbelief trap just waiting to pull you out of the story by reminding you that the stuff these people are doing is absurd and nobody in their right mind would actually want to live that life? (laughs) For Havoc in particular, it's presumably there to provide a contrast with his brother Cyclops, who spends the majority of his time in the comics as the good little soldier who wants nothing but to make Xavier's dream come true. Why don't we see more of the reluctant hero archetype in the X-Books? Thanks. I think that the X-Books by their nature make the reluctant hero more difficult because the mutants are by definition thrust into the minority allegory, whether they want to be, they don't have any choice in it. Right. Like the people it's, I mean, and this is why, again, I don't think the minority allegory works in every respect, but speaking as someone who is ethnically Jewish, but was not raised in the religion and is pursuing the religion as an adult, that aspect of it really speaks to me because here's the situation. Guess what, though? Neo-Nazis consider you Jewish. Right. It's something you're thrust into because of your blood, because of your DNA, because of however you want to put it, because of the circumstances of your birth. And you can't opt out unless you really opt out and become a traitor. You know, mm-hmm. like there's, <laughs> there are people who align themselves with... The, I mean, I didn't say it, but Spencer Ackerman once referred to Wanda Maximoff as the Stephen Miller of the mutants. And I laughed out loud. I don't know that I actually think beast is more the Stephen Miller of the mutants <laughs> right down to how he's being used now in X-Force as like the immigration cop essentially. But Wanda certainly is the ultimate in like self-hating and aligning herself with the oppressor most of the time, particularly in uncanny Avengers, the book that made me hate her forever. My thing is, if we're going to try to say we can rehabilitate Alex after Uncanny Avengers, I do personally feel that the things Wanda says in Uncanny Avengers throughout the run are way more offensive than the M-word speech, actually. The way, I mean, the things that she says and the things that Rogue says, like, Remender was, like, way worse to both of them. At least Rogue is arguing for mutants to some extent. Right, right, right. I don't think she's characterized particularly well in it, but Wanda is disgusting. I do think the Wanda stuff is like just another product of Remender being absolutely toned up as shit and just. What's wild about it is like that book involves the Red Skull, a literal Nazi. A little Nazi reminding us he like touches her as she's unconscious. He's like mutant, gypsy, Jew. Like, it's right there for you right. on the page that she's a Romani woman, a Jewish woman, until Axis fucks that up, which is a whole other issue I have with that retcon. With Axis, right? I think it's really... Listen, for a genre that was created by Jewish people, there are very few Jewish characters at either Marvel or DC. Mm-hmm. And for two of the most high-profile Jewish characters to retroactively become un-Jewish is fucked up, in my opinion. No, totally. And people are like there aren't that many romani characters I'm like they were both that was the point mm-hmm. their parents were holocaust survivors and they were the two groups that were most targeted in the holocaust and these children are the product of that they are the children of the holocaust like you can't anyway whatever it's a whole other digression but it really makes me 
agitated to think about it. But what I'm saying is Remender like points that out on the page and then has her say all of these things that like if she were saying them about Jews would be mm-hmm. violently self-hating and anti-Semitic. And it all leads up, of course, to him revealing that she's not a mutant at all. Right. So, you know, I don't know. But I just to me, that character is a lot more difficult to redeem than Alex is because Alex's speech is the kind of speech that dumb liberals right. give. Naturally, it's like a I don't see color speech. Exactly. I get that. You can educate that person. Right. And that's why he's also uncomfortably relatable. I think a lot of people are like, oh, he's an asshole. And it's like, tell me you weren't there. Right. In the 90s or early 2000s, if you were like a shithead tween. Like you weren't racist, but like you were at least like, oh, I don't see color because you didn't realize that that was a shitty thing to say. You didn't realize that that was racist. Right. Right. I mean, like, anti-Semitism is like that, too. Or homophobia, transphobia. That's one where I feel like I'm constantly learning from my trans friends. Because that's just not my life experience. and I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about half the time. You know what I mean? So I see him as a character who's, like, almost there. But hasn't quite gotten it. Well, plus he, he has, like, foot and mouth itis. He's not an articulate guy. Like, he's not like Scott. Like, Scott's, like, quiet yeah. and, like, kind of thinks about it. But Alex is just like, I'm just going to say it. Oh, shit. Oh, no. Oh, fuck. And in that scene, he is being used as a right. token by the Avengers. Oh, yeah, totally. So he's been encouraged yeah. to get out there. And he thinks that's, like, also his big hero moment. He's like, oh, I'm a hero. He thinks it's my moment to be a hero and also to make up for the spectacle that my brother just made right. of our tiny minority So they're playing group. off the terrible Scott relationship and yeah. There are only 200 mutants left and your brother just made them all look like terrorists on a global stage. Do you want to do something about it? Maybe? And he's like, okay, I'll try. <laughs> and he just doesn't, he's not good at it, right. you know? That's how I can wrap my head around that. I Again, I think Remender agreed with him. So that's what makes this a difficult book to right. analyze. It's accidentally on brand. I think Remender agreed with Wanda, right. you know? Yeah. So that's what makes it difficult. Right. But I find it something that is forgivable in Alex because I think that it is a well-intentioned, dumb, privileged thing to say. I think if he got to hear the rebuttal speech that Kitty gives in the Bendis right. run. He would be like, oh, shit. He would be like, you know, I didn't think of it that way, but you're absolutely right. right. But he doesn't get to hear Well, it. and he has the groundwork for it. Like, him through the 80s, like, he's pretty radical. And he's pretty radically yeah. pacifist. Yes. But, like, it's, like, the opposite end of the 2010 spectrum with Scott and everything. But, like, he still is, like, you know, humans suck. Like, I... Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. I think that's the big thing is, like, unlike Avengers who can just choose to retire or whatever, right. like, when you're a mutant, you can't leave. Right. Really. And the characters who try, like Alex and Lorna, are constantly dragged back in in traumatic ways. Right. Like, they get they mu- get mu- like brainwashed immediately. Yeah, they're always like, well, you're going to get brainwashed then because you're vulnerable. Right. Like, you're not with your people and therefore we can target you. Right. You know, like, that is part of why Lorna is constantly getting mind controlled. Right. Because... And it's part of why Emma won't fuck around with Alex's brain anymore. Because she's like, I don't know. He's already, he's had like layers of shit going on. Yeah, I could theoretically try to fix some of your trauma, but I don't want to touch your brain. And that's a callback actually to Betsy saying in the 80s, after the first time she mind wiped him, I really can't do that again because it will damage his brain. Yeah. And everyone being like, oh, 
Messi being like, I'm sorry. It's just like, <laughs> it's not magic. Like I can't, I, you know, it's essentially brain surgery. Like I can't do it. That I can either kill times. him or choose not to lobotomize him again. Right. Like, <laughs> tell me what the play is here. I'll kill him if you want me to. But <laughs> I fuck it. God, I love Betsy so much. She's so horrible. But I, love that I truly, yeah. 80s truly Betsy is love. Just the best. 80s Betsy is the best. And I do feel like, and I'm sorry, haters stay pressed. I think that the Betsy we have now is the closest to that we've ever gotten yeah. since. So I love it. This was kind of a fun one because I really enjoy this project. J. Andrew Demon from the Claremont Run. Oh, yeah. An academic project analyzing all of Chris Claremont's work. Wrote in, hello, Cerebrocast. So I am a massive fan of Alex during Claremont's run. My question for you is how you would compare the anxious over his head train wreck, not even supposed to be here today, Alex, who enters the Siege Perilous, to the confident-ish leadership material Havoc who comes out of the Siege Perilous, especially once developed further in that direction by Peter David. Do you see that as a sensible, continuous character evolution and progression, or as a sort of character inconsistency? I like both Havocs, but struggle a bit with aligning them. Well, I think we kind of talked about it. I think it's we did. character inconsistency-ish. I think he could end up being more competent without being a leader. What makes it work for me is the Siege Perilous mm. there. Because the Genosha thing, I think, really freaks him out. Right. Because it's not just, like, another brainwashing. It's a cosmic force decided this is who I am in my soul. Like, it tells Betsy she's a killer. Mm-hmm. It tells Dazzler and Colossus that they are artists. Right. And it tells Alex, you are a self-hating fascist. Right. (laughs) And that is, I think, really disturbing to him. What happens after that is sort of an overcompensatory measure on his part. I think he pushes himself to become a mutant leader. To be more like Scott. Yeah, because he's ashamed of the darker side of himself that the Siege Perilous revealed to him that I don't think he had ever noticed or accepted. It's sort of what we were just saying about the M-word speech. I don't think Alex ever realized that he was a self-hating mutant until the Siege Perilous told him that he was. He was just like, oh, being an X-Man isn't my thing. Right. It's dangerous. I don't really like it. Yeah. I'm afraid of hurting people, but it's like you hate your mutation, actually, is what it is. I think it held a mirror up to him that he was not comfortable with and that he dove into the new X Factor project because it felt like a way to fight back against that perception of himself or against that potential self he could become. And I think that alternate selves are useful for that. I mean, like you said, I think that the Mutant X story, because Alex remembers that, was closure for him with Madeline to some extent because he didn't think Madeline would ever come back in 616, Mm. right? So it was like, okay, now I feel like I've satisfied that. Like this is what would happen if. Yeah. Yeah. I think alternate stories where you remember them can also be damaging to the character though, which we'll get to in another question about Uncanny Avengers (laughs) a little bit. I was, yeah, I already know where that's going. (laughs) Also, Jay Andrew, follow me back on Twitter. I love your account. We should chat. You should come on, frankly. Come to an episode. I also love that account. That's the account that was like, Alex actually cries all the time. And I was like, you're right. He cried through. You're right. He cries a lot. (laughs) Henry Mayer writes, hey, Connor, as always, thanks for the podcast. It rules your guest rule. Highlight of my week. Thanks again. Well, you're welcome. 
Zeb Wells has picked up on a running theme throughout Alex's history, his tendency to turn bad. Eric the Red's mind control, the Inferno's Goblin Prince, Genosha's Prelate, Age of Apocalypse, Serving Dark Beast and Onslaught, Axis, etc. What is it about Alex Summers, who on the surface seems like just as big a Boy Scout as his brother, he's even more of a government man than Scott is really, that makes writers want to play up his dark side or make him a villain? I think it's the Scott connection. Like, that's what I yeah. always go back to. Like, Scott's People so want to make him a foil for Scott. Right. And it doesn't work. And that's why when Scott was, quote unquote, bad right. as like a radical, they made Alex an Avenger. Right. And it's because, I think, of a lack of care for Alex as a character individually. Separately from Scott. Yeah. So, like, let's yes. make Alex a cop. Which, like, I mean, doesn't... Right. I mean, we said this about Lorna also. Like, these characters have been regarded as supporting cast right. pretty much their entire publication history by everyone except Peter David. Alex got his moment to shine with Claremont with the X-Men in a book that had, apart from the dynamic to his relationship with Madeline, nothing to do with Scott. Right. I think there's a reason that that's the book he shines in the most and the period he shines in the most, because if as a character you exist only to be a foil for another character, there's just less for you to do. Exactly. You're a plot device. Right. You're not really a person. And so if Alex's politics and personality exist solely in opposition to where Scott's at. Of course he's going to fall in like Of course weird... he's going to, yeah, be bad a lot of the time because most of the time Cyclops is portrayed as the noble leader of the X-Men. Right. So if you want the Summers brothers to fight, you make Alex bad. Which is why I like Hellions because Hellions 4 is like, we're going to make him fight, but... Alex is the one who's clearly in the right about it. Like, and everybody's like, oh. And it's about Madeline, which right. again is the point of contention between the two of them that was always the best for Alex as a character in terms of interiority. Right. Because again, he was right and Scott was wrong. Right. So it's really that simple on some level. I think that Polaris is another character though. Like she gets mind control to be evil a lot because they have easy, ready-made connections to core X-Men characters but have never been considered core X-Men characters. Right. So it's easy to fuck with them to get other people to react. Right. So that's sort of my take. I'm relieved that they are each now the co-lead of a book and getting, that seems like, interested in who they are as a person. Yeah. yeah, like X-Factor is an ensemble book, but the leads are Polaris and Northstar. Right. Hellions is an ensemble book, but the leads are Havoc and Silo. Yeah. In both cases, I feel like Havoc and Polaris are getting finally. This is why I, much as I am a lifelong Polaris fan, I don't particularly want her to be on the X-Men team because I think that on the X-Men team, she will be supporting cast again. Whereas I really like the leading role that she has right now. And I didn't like the way Hickman has written her so far. It just oh, very really? briefly. Yeah, just like the weird, like... In House of X, she's a little deferential to Magneto. Yeah, Magneto's that was me. a little weird. But I thought in Creation, she was great. Yeah, Creation was good. But then I don't know how much of that was teeny. Well, you don't know what was right. teeny and what was him. Right. The co-written issues, I think, are pretty collaborative. Right. Boyce Powell writes, Hi, Connor and Allison. Love the podcast. It's been a great companion to my first ever Claremont read-through. Well, good for you. Ooh, yeah. You're reading the sacred text. This show has challenged me to look at stories I've known my whole life, mostly through adapted media, uncannyxmen.net summaries, or endless Wikipedia clicking, in a more honest queer lens that flew under my little closeted radar growing up. Thank you for finally giving me the words to explain Emma Frost to my friends as the third way to Xavier and Magneto's dynamic and why she's so fucking cool. <laughs> well, you're welcome. That is an important part of my agenda. Also, fun fact, I was introduced to Havoc in the fighting game X-Men Next Dimension, where in one of his grab taunts, he yells, 
I'm better than Cyclops. Say it. Of course, I was always like, yeah, he's cute, but whatever. I didn't start loving the dummy until I started following Allison on Twitter. So thank you, Allison, for shitposting about this other Summer's brother because he deserves so much love. That is my entire life's mission statement. I love that. I'm sorry. I'm asking a question about Uncanny Avengers. The last thing I remember before trailing off on the series is Havoc being messed up from losing his alternate reality kid. Whatever happened with that, didn't he vow to get her back? Is he just done with that? Where is the kid? We don't know. (laughs) So this is what I was sort of alluding to earlier. I have no problem with stories like Age of X-Men or Age of X, which was incredible, Mm -hmm. where the characters remember, like Frenzy has an incredible character turn out of Age of X Mm -hmm. because Joanna Cargill is evil as shit for a really long time. And then after she experiences Age of X, where she's a hero and one of the X-Men and in love with Cyclops, it all goes back to normal. And Frenzy's like, but wait, I remember all of that. And it feels so much better to be a good person. And she decides to try to become a hero. Mm -hmm. That's a great arc. My Carrie's so good. I like stuff like that. I like that the blob seems to remember his relationship with Betsy from the Age Mm -hmm. of X-Man. I like that stuff. The one time it's messy for me is when they do this specific plot, which is give them kids who then cease to exist. I think that is a ton of baggage to put on a character, and I don't think there's a good way to handle it on the page. So in this case, he married Jan and had this child with her, and the child was never born because the timeline was repaired. And like, could he theoretically go, like, could there be some plot with Kang where like he gets the child back from the timeline or whatever? I guess, maybe. But like, why? I don't think they're ever going to do that. And I'm just going to be real. I think that the loss of a child is the kind of storyline it is really hard to tell sensitively in a superhero comic. I can think of very few cases in which I think it was done well. Mm -hmm. Mary Jane has a miscarriage in 90s Mm Spider-Man that I think was handled pretty well. Then you have like the weird Flash Jeff Johns shit, which was not handled well at all. Yeah. I mean, the really bad one in the X-Men before this was the Siren and Madrox storyline, which I really don't like. Hated. Yeah, I just point blank hated it. I dropped X-Factor. I dropped X-Factor and only came back when Lorna came in. Right. When Lorna and Alex came in, I I tried again. But I fully dropped the book after that because I was so put off by it. Because there's no way to... I just know from people who have lost children, whether to pregnancy complications or they lost their child because of a tragedy of some kind, it just really changes who you are as a person in a very fundamental way that I think is a little too heavy for this genre. And I also think doesn't lend itself to, as we've been talking about, the cyclical nature of these characters Mm -hmm. where they tend to regress to the mean a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think giving Alex a dead daughter that only he can remember is a useful beat for the character. No, I agree. And I'm glad that we mostly seem to not be dealing with it because I just think it's too much... He already had to leave Scotty behind in Mutant X, Mm -hmm. you know? So we don't need it again, especially with a daughter that he actually raised who no one else remembers. It's just cruel in a way that I don't think can be handled well. I actually feel similarly. I really enjoyed Sean and Maguire's Nightcrawler story from Age of X-Men overall. Oh, yeah. But she did give Kurt and Megan a daughter and... 
that daughter now doesn't exist because that timeline was erased. And she hasn't been mentioned by Kurt or Megan. And people are like, when are Kurt and Megan going to mention their... I'm like, I hope they don't because I'm sorry. I just don't want the characters to have to deal with that. It's not fun. It's not a character beat you can go anywhere with, Mm -hmm. particularly. It's just an all-consuming grief to put on that character that you can never really take away. And I don't think... I don't think it's a good thing to do. And so at first, when it seemed like no one remembered Age of X-Men, I was like, okay, that's fine. But now that it's clear people do, I hope that if we do revisit that, it's just going to be kind of like a a wistful moment of just like, she was part of the fantasy, like she wasn't real. And we didn't actually like, and and that is really sad because we loved her, Mm -hmm. but like brush over it pretty fast because I just think it's, I think it's too dark. I just do. I don't think it's fun. And I think that honestly... I have never had a child, but if I were a reader who had lost a child, I would find those storylines very distressing in mm-hmm. a way that would take me out of the story. And it's not additive. Like, you can't no, really... No, it's not. Yeah, you can't really do anything... You can't do anything with it. It's just a trauma that the character can never resolve. Right. So no, I just totally. don't think it's useful. And in both those cases, I would prefer to just never mention it again, right. if I'm being honest. And I don't think Shauna McGuire thought that it was something they would remember when she wrote that. Right. You know what I mean? So it's not her fault, but... I just hope it's something we can brush over in that case. And in this case with Alex and Jan's daughter, Catherine, I hope it's just something that we can forget. Forget. In the same way that he doesn't talk about Mutinex. Like he doesn't need to talk about this. We can talk about the M word speech instead. I'd much rather. (laughs) Yeah. If we're going to address anything from Uncanny Avengers, we need to address the M word stuff more than the daughter stuff in, in my opinion. Ben Ventura writes, hello, Connor. Hello, Allison. Alex Summers is a character who's been done dirty in the past 20 or so years of publication, as I'm sure you've touched on by this point in the episode. (laughs) From the M-word speech, just being downright homophobic and Marjorie Lou's astonishing. What do you two think it is that makes Alex so right for the problematic picking? Love the show. Love Allison. Very excited for some quality discussion about one of my favorite stressed out himbos. Best Ben. So I didn't actually remember him being like low key homophobic. It was just like one throwaway line where he's like something about his grandma. Right. Yeah. I here's the thing. I have blocked out so much of North Star's wedding and that whole (laughs) storyline. And it's not Marjorie Lou's fault. Like I think Marjorie Lou's run in the X Men is great. I just everything about that storyline. They were doing something that was really nice to do i and i like for the real world politics of it all and i fully get that but i think it's out of character for north star no one has successfully made me care about kyle and i just remember warbird the homophobic she are that's what i remember i remember warbird being like i won't acknowledge your and talk about a don't worry about it you literally never have to think about this character again as long as especially since i like really ship karma and warbird i'm just like i'm just gonna absolutely forget about all that weird bullshit yeah i mean that aside because i i want better for karma frankly (laughs) i mean the way that marjorie lou wrote warbird was interesting I, i just that character was such a I don't know, it was kind of a nothing to me. But the part where it's just like, I don't acknowledge this marriage. I'm like, okay, like, who cares? This is so, I don't know. Anyway, so I forgot. I think it's just Alex makes like a joke, right? Yes. But it's like not, it's, here's the thing. I remember it and I I, I literally haven't gone back. So maybe I should, but I'm not gonna actually. I'm just not gonna, sorry. I remember it being the kind of joke that your straight friend makes that's like not, hateful just like a little like dude come on he's like joking with you but it's like don't say that please you know like not which here's the thing as we said 
that's very Alex. Like he's not hip to the. He'll regret most... it, and if you tell him like why he's. If you tell out, him, you know that yeah. was a little homophobic. He would be embarrassed, and he would apologize to right. you. As a character beat, that's actually not out of character for him to like say something stupid that he doesn't realize the implications of. I mean, I think that again, we sort of touched on this, but the reason that I think he is put through the ringer so much is because it's a very easy way to get a reaction out of Cyclops. Yeah. And that's like, yeah, that's the basic thing. And not enough writers care about him as a person. Yeah. So it's, you know. Because a, a lot of writers care about Scott, which is like fair. I mean, I don't hate Scott. I don't like Scott, but. Yeah, it's not unlike the way female characters, girlfriend characters, wife characters get tortured. Sure. Because it's, you know, and that is more common. Right. As plenty of women critics have pointed out but like you know this is a similar thing which is that like he's essentially an accessory character that the more important character loves right he's like the robins like you can do something to him to make batman react as much as i didn't like rosenberg's uncanny run i think he was trying to critique a lot of that with how every x-men story is kind of about scott yeah yeah i just didn't like disassembled yeah I was just yeah disappointed in that whole. And then there was the whole rain thing, which yeah. we don't have to get into, but that was that was really bad. Which he knows that that was. That's actually a good case of something like what we we're talking about with Alex, where it was like that guy thought he was doing something progressive, but it actually right. hurt a lot of people. Right. And he apologized, which I think Alex would about the M word speech if Kitty explained to him why it was fucked right. up. You know what I mean? Chuck Marsh writes. If you could bring in an element from Mutant X, which I think was a fun, wild ride, out from the don't worry about it category and have it matter and affect Alex's story going forward, what would you pick? Personally, I'm all for Scotty coming to meet his dad in the 616 world and complicating the Summers family tree even more, especially since Alex did make a real attempt to be his dad. Hope you both have a good week. Chuck Marsh. The problem with Scotty is that he's just Franklin Richards. Right. Well, he's like Franklin Richards and then also, what, Carter? nurse annie's child and like the same person because he's like a precog too he's an uber telepath with like franklin richards-esque kind of omnipotent powers or like very legion without the parts of legion that make legion right interesting like scotty to me just wasn't that interesting a character what was interesting was thrusting alex into this world where he was married to madeline and they had a child which is like oh i wanted this and now i have it what do i right like and i never admitted to myself that i wanted this but now it's been given to me. Like, that was what was interesting to me. In terms of mutant act stuff to bring through, I think that it would be fun to see that version of Warren pop up again. I was going to say, I really love weird... The Fallen. Gothic. Yeah, yeah, like the weird gothic. He insists on being called The Fallen, and they all just still call him Warren. And he's like, guys, I'm The Fallen now. Excuse me. Yeah, it's like Warren and his, like, like people like say, like, Archangel is his goth phase, but, like, The Fallen... But, like, The Fallen is next level. Yeah, that's like... like, Yeah. Yeah. I think that would be fun... In the same way that Bloodstorm was fun when they brought her in mm-hmm. with the like team. Vampire it wasn't Storm the same like character, but cool. Vampire Storm is a cool idea. Right. Bat-winged demon Warren is also a cool idea, but I wouldn't ever want them to do it with our Warren. So like bringing right. that character so through for some over one. plot could be fun. But I'm not sure I would do anything, honestly, with any of Alex's personal stuff from you. No, like, me the way neither. We said, like, it wraps it all up pretty nice. It wrapped it up. I wouldn't really want to touch on that again. I think it's actually a pretty complete arc. Yeah. Caleb Warren writes, Hi, Connor and Allison. So excited to listen to you all wreak havoc on this week's episode of Cerebro. 
Alex has had some high-profile romantic entanglements in the past, all of which have so far ended pretty badly for at least one party involved. But with both of his brothers living their best lives in Krakoan polycules, Scott with Jean, Logan, and Emma, Gabriel with Petrus, Sway, and alcohol, maybe it's finally clear what Alex needs to be happy. Who would you point Alex towards were he to dip his toe into the pool of polyamory? Maybe this is how we resolve all the Alex-Lorna-Bobby tension, or maybe it's time for some new phases in Alex's orbit. Anything's possible with Krakoa. Well, anything except Maddie, apparently. Thanks again, and looking forward to listening, Caleb. So I have long been an advocate for Alex and Bobby banging it out. I think that that would be hysterically funny. I think Lorna would be like, yeah, that tracks. Dating Polaris is gay, as I've said on this podcast many times. And if we're just going to get into like a bisexual Krakoan space, I think that would be a funny thing to do. Would that be healthy for him, though? I'm not sure. Well, I like what Ali Wing is doing in Guardians right now, which is basically let's make everybody bisexual because it's kind of where most of these characters should go. With mutants, I feel like everyone should be bisexual, yeah. if not gay. Right. I'm like, there should be gay characters right. and then everyone else should be bi. Yeah. That's my X-Men hot take. that it... That is a large part of making a lot of more a lot more characters more comfortable with themselves. Yeah. And I, I think it's something that he's he's done with Star Lord, but I think he, I hope he's gonna do it with Nova, because that seems like a very organic place to go with him healthily. And I think the same goes for Alex. Yeah, I mean I'm not a big Marvel Cosmic person as I've said, but it feels a little bit weird to do the Star Lord as bisexual and in a polyamorous triad plot if you're not leading to and now he's back with Nova and Gamora. Right. Like, that feels... I hope that that is where it is going. And Al Ewing's a very intelligent writer. I love Al Ewing. I was very sad for him about the thing that happened with Immortal Hulk. The I know. Because I'm sure that he's one of those writers where I'm like, I'm pretty sure you're not the one... Listen, from what I understand, he's the person who brought trans sensitivity consultants to yes. Marvel when he he's introduced that, that character... Like, he really is trying to be a good guy, yeah. and I just know that Al Ewing is not an anti-Semite. Right. he's trying like, to It's just like, work. that, yeah. yeah. So I was just very sad for him. I'm always very sad for the writers when an artist decision impacts the work in a way that I know is not the writer's intention. And that is part of the collaborative nature of comics, right? Like, you are co-creating this together, and it, you have to trust each other. Because mm -hmm. I'm sure plenty of artists have had to draw things that they didn't mm -hmm. agree with. So right. it can go both ways, but yeah, I just, in that case, I was really sad. Anyway. But to go back to that point, yeah. Yeah, I think, to go back. I think that if they went that same direction with a couple, well, quite a few more mutants, it would make a lot of sense. Yeah, I would like it to be more textual. Yeah. I know that that's a corporate thing. I think right. that if the X office could, they would. And I'm not like, you know, that's but the just higher, my higher up sense. Yeah. But yeah, I'm not even talking about editorial. Right. I'm talking about like whoever's managing the IP and decides right. like which characters are allowed to be no, absolutely. like labeled as LGBT characters in comics on Wikipedia. Right. But I do think that that's a natural place for Alex to go if they did let it happen. Alex and Bobby have always had a very homoerotic thing. Well, I mean, Alex asked if he could pee on him, so I there think... Was, <laughs> there was that, and I got I can't lie, of all the insane things Chuck Austin did, that one was a little hot. A little bit. I can't lie. It was a little sexy. What if I pissed you a new body after Bobby's been shattered? I can do that. I'm My sorry. My is full. <laughs> I that was that was it was kind of erotic in a weird way. I'm sorry, like not to get vulgar, but I actually like 
There's a vibe with him and Conan and Grey Crow in Hellions. Oh, him and Grey Crow definitely have like a... If he were Conan and Grey Crow's like dumb boyfriend mm-hmm. that they feel the need to protect... It would make a lot of sense. I would really enjoy that. Right. And I think that he would be a good centering element for both of them because he is, for all that he's been through, more innocent than they right. are. He is good. Like he's He is like a good person right. and he is more of a pacifist. He never wanted to kill. They were both essentially raised as killers. Right. And like killing is all they've known and they're trying to be that person. And he is that person but has been driven to becoming a killer. Right. So it's like they have that I think they would balance each other out mm-hmm. in the way that I think Logan does balance out Scott and Jean. Mm-hmm. And why that is such a brilliant innovation. And I just wish that they could say on the page. Like, I just want a splash page of Scott and Logan and Gene in bed together. Too much to ask And it's it's never going to (laughs) happen. It's never going to happen. No. But I just, they don't even have to be doing anything. They could just be asleep in the big bed. But we're never, we're just, it's never going to happen. I accept that. It's just, it's unfortunate. Because I think that the story that they're telling is very smart. Right. And I wish that we could see all of it on the page in the same token meltdown is super homoerotic yeah havoc and wolverine meltdown Um, is you gotta read it if you've never read it it's four issues it's four (laughs) issues it's a quick read the art is an acquired taste not everyone's gonna like it i find wolverine kind of hideous to look upon in it but alex is patterned after james dean which talk about homoerotic Mm -hmm. to begin with right (laughs) it's just them on a road trip and like Alex fell in love with this nurse, but she's secretly evil. And of course she manipulates him. And Yeah. And it's like, right. This is right after Inferno. So like in the end, Logan lies to him. Logan doesn't tell him yeah. that she was evil right. because she died. And so it's like, well, Alex doesn't need to know about this. Cause he just <laughs> he went just through all this with Madeline. <laughs> yeah. It's like, he just got through the whole Lorna thing. He just got through the whole Madeline thing. Like we don't need to, we don't need to go there. They're like, in hotel rooms together it's very it feels like they're fucking it just does at one point wolverine like screams alex's name and he's buck naked yeah he runs nude out into the desert screaming alex's name (laughs) so that's a good one i feel like one of the first x-men slash fan fictions i ever read on the internet was like a havoc and wolverine meltdown Mm -hmm. Story like at one of those archives that oh, don't same. exist anymore. Mm-hmm. One of those like Angel Fire dot exactly yeah. like Angel Fire GeoCities tripod yeah. something. <laughs> Back in the day when dinosaurs roamed the earth, all of the Gen Z kids listening to this are just like, "What the fuck are they?" Talking what about? is Angel Fire? What is GeoCities? Right. <laughs> Web 1.0. It was a dark time, <laughs> but um yeah, I think that the Conan and Grey Crow budding relationship that's very clearly happening would be only improved. If Alex was the monkey in the middle. That's my opinion. I also... <laughs> this would be fucked up. Here's the thing. I think that Alex and Pietro have vibes. But Pietro is maybe Lorna's brother. I've always low-key shipped Lorna and Rachel. So it's not like it's that much more fucked up. <laughs> That's... You know what? It's like they should maybe both have a gay experimentation moment with <laughs> the other person's relative. That could be I, I think that's healthy and totally fine. Yeah. As long as they like told each other about it, I think it would be like, listen, we're X-Men. Like this is all kind of incestuous and weird anyway. Or like, you know, and then Nightcrawler's just like, it's not that weird. You know, it's like, <laughs> everyone's like, shut up, Kurt. Like we didn't ask. Havoc has always been a very homoerotic character also in the way he's been drawn. Mm-hmm. I mean, in his first appearance, 
the story with the living pharaoh mm. who becomes living monolith. Here you are, Alex, like nearly nude and strapped down in my machine. Like it's very from his inception. It's been that way. And, you know, when when I solicited questions for this episode, I posted a bunch of like classic himbo Alex panels. He's like, I got to run. I'm a runner. Here's my runner's body. In the 80s, he's constantly shirtless in tiny, tiny shorts. That's part of my attachment to the character is he's fucking hot in the stuff I was reading when I was, you know, at an impressionable age. Dazzler calls him hot bod because he does have a hot bod. And you could look at it in the pages <laughs> of Uncanny X-Men. And also his 90s design. Like I know people hate on the 90s head socks and I but get that they that don't really make sense. But amazing. he looks great. The fingerless gloves, the hair. Yeah. The whole look is great. They did that. 90s Havoc and Polaris action figure set. Oh, I, I bought them. Because I was just like, mm-hmm. they look great. Oh, yeah. Those are great outfits on both of them. I actually wish that she was in also her, like, head sock oh, variant yeah. that she does mm-hmm. later in that run, which is a great look for her. I like those cowls, whatever you want to call the them. I think they're fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they're fun on certain characters. Mm-hmm. I get that, like, in the 90s, like, everyone had one, and it was like, what are these? Why are we all wearing this mm-hmm. now? But Gambit's never gotten rid of his because he's just like, he was introduced when that was in fashion in Mm -hmm. comics. Alex has gone back to his classic look a lot, but I think that he looks great with one of those. I love that 90s look for him with the jacket and all of that. So, but I'm just saying he's always been portrayed in a very pretty way. He wore a lot of Speedos in the 80s also. I'm just going to be honest. Like, I don't care about too many dude X-Men characters. And the ones that I do care about, it's simply are hot. a super shallow, instantaneous, like... You looked at him and were like, ra- wow, right. he's fucking hot. Right. Yeah. I'm like, I'm gay and I think he's hot. Like, I think that that's like... Right. That is... The, like, you're a lesbian. Yeah. That's a hot man. I mean, like, yeah. I mean, like, he and Warren are, like, extremely good looking. And, like, if I yeah. say so, like, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm that way about, like, when I think that, like, a woman is, like, hot. Right. It's like, oh, yeah. Like, she's She must smoking. be... If you're into women, she must be, like devastating to look right. upon <laughs> like, that's know, why I, I have so many issues with those like name your top 10 x-women lists i'm just like i don't know my brain just shorted out i have no idea how to do that i have so much trouble with that with x-men character with like, male yes, characters because my top male i mean particularly this is like this is a realization i've been having rereading like i love colossus purely because i want to have sex with him he's awful I remember seeing you and Nola's conversation. I know, Nola and Claire and I were having a conversation. I was just like, well, but he was so sweet in the 70s. And the, <laughs> but you and, know that your brain is actually like, but like he's, but, he's hot. Like. Well, but and then Annalise and I talked about it on her episode because it was right after I had that conversation with uh-huh. Nola and Claire, actually. And I have been rereading because the uncanny, I got the uncanny omnibuses uh-huh. recently. So I've been rereading and Annalise and I talked about this. When we first read those stories as... 11 12 year olds kitty was us mm-hmm. and so nothing about it seemed inappropriate right. because it was all we wanted and like she was older than us so like she was a grown-up they were both grown-ups it like didn't you know and now looking back you're just like anyway i love colossus purely on an aesthetic level i recognize in any story after 1990 i would tell you like he sucks and then, like, <laughs> nolan claire were like he sucked in the 80s too though if you're like a woman like looking at these stories i was like oh shit i never really thought of it that way <laughs> oops but yeah no or like i love banshee why not because banshee's a good character because i want to suck banshee's dick 
<laughs> that's like not a good way to choose which character you should like, but he's hot. It's just like, I can't, you know, I am what I am. In any case, we have one more question. Well, it's two questions, but I thought that it would be good to end on this one because there's a lot of jumping off points. Rob Secundus of Comics XF writes, Dear Connor and Allison, I have a silly question and a serious one. Which member of the X-Men is most often incorrectly described as a himbo? So that, we dig into that first. Let's taxonomize the himbos of the X-Men. You're truly an expert on this. Who are himbos in the X-Men and who are not? For example, we were just talking about this on Twitter. Namor is not a himbo. Not Namor a himbo. is neither He's nice nor stupid. Yeah. He's just hot. Yeah. I think Namor is unbelievably hot. Oh, yeah. He's, but he's I a, love him. But he's smart yeah. and a bitch. Right. That's like his whole characterization. Not a himbo. Similarly, someone was like, ultimate himbo is Longshot. No, Longshot is nice and dumb, but he's not buff. Longshot is That's a That's true. He's kind of twinky, but... He's himbo adjacent, for right. sure. But I don't think he's, like, big enough to... But then we have to get into, like, the Johnny Storm is definitely a himbo. Well, I guess that's fair, but he's also more, like, of a muscular build. He's twunky. Longshot's, like, David Bowie. sort of feminine in the way that he's styled. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Because a bimbo is hyper-feminine, right. right? So I just feel like a himbo character has to have, like, a masculine presentation right. visually. And Longshot is, like, intentionally androgynous 80s. That's part of why the character is hard to update. Because he was very on trend mm-hmm. in fashion at the time he was introduced. Mm-hmm. And when you bring him back now without that haircut, you're like, who is? Oh, it's Longshot. Which is also my other thing I like to bring up. Like, PAD also made Longshot an asshole. Oh, so, yeah. So, like, if you can do that. Big time. Uh, anyways. But. Anyway. Oh, that's another one. Wait. That's another one. Dazzler had a miscarriage. And again, I thought it was oh, yeah. a tacky storyline. Here's the other thing. They always, this is the thing about superhero comics and why I think that you shouldn't touch the death of children in that way. In, like as a parent, like the loss of a child as a parent. Because in several of those cases, the sci-fi nature of it all brings the kid back. Right. Like that baby that Dazzler miscarried is Shatterstar. Allison just made a face. <laughs> that's deranged, right? right? Like that's wild. Sue Storm has a miscarriage in the 80s. Oh, and then I forgot about that. Yeah. It's Valeria. Franklin right. Richards fixes it with his powers. It's just a thing that happens a lot. The Scarlet Witch. Right. She lost her babies and now they're Wicked in Speed. In all these cases, the character that ended up resulting from it, cool. But like, uh, anyway, for me at least, like the big himbos of the X-Men are early Colossus. And then I think Colossus loses it, and he's not a himbo anymore. He does, because he gets mean. Starting in the 90s, he's just mean. Like, in the 80s, even if you think his relationship with Kitty is inappropriate, which it is, he's dumb and nice. He's callous, but, like, it's, you know, like, he's... He's uh, nice. Well, yeah, it's like he's patronizing because she's too young. Right. (laughs) You know, like, it's not an appropriate relationship. But in his interactions with the world, he's, like the nice one he's the one who can't be corrupted by limbo he's like the you know it's that character beat it's really just the kitty relationship that mm-hmm. is so, and that's just a thing where it's like honestly also we're looking at it in a different temporal context mm-hmm. and like 
in the 80s, it wasn't seen as inappropriate in the same way that we see it now. And I'm not defending that. I'm not saying that's right. I just do think that we now look at it like, excuse me? And at the time, I think that while some people were like, excuse me, most people were just like, okay, whatever. Because there are so many like 80s rom-coms with age gaps. Sure, sure. That no one, you know. Your older brother's friend from college is like such a trope in like material from the 70s mm-hmm. and 80s when like you're a high school student girl or whatever like it's just like a thing right that fantasy but yeah so like colossus i would say when he was introduced certainly that was the vibe brian braddock similarly had a real mean phase when he was mm-hmm. an alcoholic mean drunk. Mm-hmm. yeah he has since come out the other end he's to become definitely a himbo now a peak dad himbo, himbo. Yeah, despite himbo dad. his nuclear physics degree yes he is a phd in nuclear physics and yet a moron right in every way that matters warren obviously i mean he's smart but he's also a himbo like he's dumb yeah it's about being a ditz it's like it's not about being book smart it's about you just could being be book smart but you, you just like are socially a fucking moron right like you know oh bobby DaCosta is also definitely a himbo bobby DaCosta definitely definitely particularly the hickman Bobby, yeah. which I know you said is not your favorite, but I think part of why I like him is that it's leaned so far into that, and I am enjoying yeah, it. Yeah, and Ewing's doesn't, but I mean, Bobby's a himbo in the same way Warren's a himbo. Like, they both yeah. run a company, and they're smart. Shatterstar oh, is a big one. absolutely a himbo. Who else off the top of my head? See, like, Hellion was mean. Like, there are characters where yeah. they have bits of it, but they're not the same They're archetype. a vimbo. <laughs> I don't know. I I don't feel the need to taxonomize no. too much. Further. I mean, like, yeah, especially with like, like you said, with like Namor, like he does yeah. not need to be. He's just he's cool, but he's not a himbo. He's great. He's he's, he's, and he's sexy. He he's sexy, but he's not. It's not. Yeah. That's not correct, right? And similarly, Longshot sexy. He's just a different kind of sexy from right. like himbo to me conveys that like they are like an 80s gay porn actor visually. <laughs> it's like that kind of look right. like right down to havoc's little shorts right. you know what i mean like havoc looks like a model from bijou right and if you're a gay man of a certain age you'll understand exactly <laughs> what i'm saying but like it's that vibe can you think of anybody else who you would taxonomize in the x universe as a himbo no, I see a lot of people say that Richter is a himbo and he's not. He is like, he's too... Brooding. Yeah. He's not. Yeah, he's he's too, too... In his own head. Yeah, absolutely. And Doug's not a himbo because Doug's like tiny. Like Doug's a twink. Yeah, Doug's Not a twink. the same thing. <laughs> and also Doug is, Doug is frankly like too intelligent He's like genius work. intelligent. Yeah. 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 Oh, who was I going to say? Oh, I feel like Neil Shara is a little bit himbo adjacent, but we haven't seen him in a very long time. Mm-hmm. But if he turns back up, I feel like he could be a good one. Mm-hmm. And I feel like he probably will turn back up because Karima is important right, to the Orcus right, right. plot and they were lovers back in the day. So before she was turned into a Sentinel. It's complicated. We'll get to that someday <laughs> in an Omega Sentinel episode. I don't know. I also just think Neil Shara is hot. So I would be into a return for that character. Not, I mean, literally hot because his power is fire, but you, you, get, you, know, you get what I'm saying. Oh, Warpath. Oh, Duh. I was about to say, Jimmy is a himbo. I was just thinking about Thunderbird yeah. and then my yeah. like I free associated yeah. in my head. Yep. Yeah, that's a good yeah, one. Jimmy is a himbo. And true to type. And I love him. They just put him in very little shorts. Yes, as they should. <laughs> in Vidayala and Rod Race's new twist on that character, which is completely correct. He should be in the tiniest shorts. I love that for him and for all of us. 
So then, Robert's serious question, what recent book releases do you think X-Readers might really enjoy? Or if that's too narrow, what books do you just want to hype for the listeners? Best, Rob Secundus. So you're a bookseller. I'm a literary agent. If you're an X-Men fan, what would be a book that you would recommend that's relatively recent? I My reading taste for prose is entirely separate from my comics taste for the most part. But I think if people really like Hickman's era and especially house of x and powers of 10 or katie martin's memory called empire and that book's sequel. incredible yeah and the sequel's coming out on my birthday soon she's very cool the thing for me is like i know all these people so, <laughs> and like cons and whatnot so it's like she's fantastic her wife is also they're studying together they're um, yeah and her books are great like i think it kind of taps into a lot of like the it's an incredible book post humanity yeah weird AI stuff that Hickman's putting down and people might really enjoy it. Yeah, that's that I really recommend yeah. Memory Called Empire and like it's gonna be a series, but like that first book is Yeah. Oh, and I read the second book already. The second book's amazing. Yeah, the second book's yeah. also great, yeah. but like it's wonderful. You can't get it yet. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think what else. Yeah, like my sci fi taste is entirely separate from my X Men taste. Mm-hmm. I don't read superhero prose or anything. No, I I mean I find that I find that superhero prose is hard to do well. Exactly, yeah. Because it's such a visual medium. And I think that a lot of the time it doesn't really translate. There is one book that I think is maybe worth picking up if you're an excellent person. My friend Sarah Pede edited it at Delray. Uh, is Bob Prohl's The Nobody People. Oh, yes. Which yeah. has kind of a, a hero's X-Men kind of vibe. And I'm not just shilling that because Bob said that he likes the podcast the other day, <laughs> which he did say on Twitter. Thank you, Bob. But I thought it was good. Cass Morris, who just appeared for the Rogue episode and is a client of mine, full disclosure, but her ancient Roman fantasy series, The Avon Cycle from Unseen Fire and the second one, Give Way to Night, just came out. Very big cast of people with powers. It's a fun setting. It's very ornate kind of plotting in that Claremont tradition and very strong female characters and sort of that Claremont tradition. So I think those are worth picking up if you're a fantasy fan. Not really X-Men adjacent at all, but I just feel the need to recommend it at all times is my friend Seth Dickinson's book, The Traitor by Rue Cormorant. And I was going to bring those up to you. I just yeah. did my reread and I love those books so, so I much. think The Traitor by Rue Cormorant is the best sci-fi fantasy debut of the last like 20 years. Yeah. And I don't rep it. So, I'm um, you know, we became friends because I wouldn't shut up about the book i begged and begged and begged for a galley when yeah, before it came out and then i got one i also i, just, I also yeah, read it as a galley i would not shut up about it it's fucking breathtaking it's about colonialism and imperialism and compromises that you make for revenge and lesbian spies and it's really good yeah it's very good i cannot recommend it more highly and there are two sequels now so get into it I think that what's more useful maybe is to look at which comics writers you like that also do prose because the themes are going to be somewhat similar. So like, I think that if you're enjoying N.K. Jemisin's Far Sector at DC, N.K. Jemisin is a brilliant novelist. Mm-hmm. There are lots of novels you could read. If you are enjoying Nettie Okorafor's mm-hmm. stuff in Wakanda, Nettie Okorafor, Binti is incredible. If you like Salih and Ahmed's stuff, I really love Throne of the Crescent Moon. 
Ben Percy writes novels. Like there are a lot of comics writers who are also novelists. I also do a monthly column or semi-monthly every once in a while, whenever the fuck I feel like it column um, for comics book case. And it's take one comic, give you a dozen prose recs for it. And a lot of them are just like free short story online things you can read. Yeah. To see if it's something that you like. Yeah. And also, obviously, you should buy anything I represented because I will make money. <laughs> so you can find all of those books at connorgoldsmith.com slash books. What's tricky with the X-Men is that more than anything, it feels like a television show. Mm-hmm. And I think that there are a lot of TV shows that would be easy for me to recommend. But like the X-Men to novel pipeline is a little harder. Yeah. Just because it is such a serial. Mm-hmm. It was like Animorphs, like Animorphs, like maybe that's like the... Yeah, I mean, that was very... But it's like a kid's book, you know what I mean? Right, yeah. Yeah. Well, Allison, is there anything else you would like to say about Alex Summers before we start to wrap up? I don't think so. Uh, We touched on most of what I wanted to touch on. I could variously talk about him all the time for hours so well thank you so much for being my guest this was a lot of fun i hope that for the listeners who don't understand why we like this character we've done a decent job showing you the lighter side of alex summers i do love this character i am really hopeful about his trajectory now that a writer like zeb wells who takes such care with his characterization across an entire cast is working on this character but you know it's been a rough road for a bit there allison why don't you tell the listeners where they can follow you on the web and plug literally anything and everything you want to plug (laughs) um you can find me on twitter which is the easiest and i'm always on twitter i'm never not on twitter um at malicious glee and I don't really have anything to plug. I'm not a creator. I don't create anything. I just like to read shit and plug other people's things. But you you write and review stuff. You know, you were just saying you were going to do, you're doing a big review thing. I do. Um, yeah, I do reviews for Comics Bookcase um, and also for CXF, which used to be Xavier Files, which I'm sure everybody still remembers fondly as that. I think if you type Xavier Files, it'll redirect I think it you. does, yeah. Yeah. Um, I still do reviews there. I'm covering Guardians every month and now Black Cat every month because Black Cat is also a delight and everybody should read that. Those Pepe Larath covers are yeah. exceptional. They are I have amazing. not read the book, yeah. but I love the no, covers. It is super fun. <laughs> um, I've heard it's great. Yeah. I've heard it's great. Those are great. Um, yeah. Uh, follow me on Twitter and I'll scream about literally everything you should be reading. She's a really fun Twitter follow. You should, you should just, you should. I'm just stream of consciousness. The fact that I've been off Twitter all afternoon is probably worrying some people. (laughs) Yeah. People are like, where is she? she Did she fall in a hole? Like Lassie, where's Allison? (laughs) You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at CerebroCast. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes plus transcripts of the episodes as they go up. And again, I'm sorry, my real life and my real job have been (laughs) demanding my attention and it's a little bit labor intensive, but more are coming for sure actually soon at cerebrocast.com the official landing page for the podcast you can also find a link there to the cerebro discord server which is a lot of fun you can join the conversation i peek in there when i can you can write into cerebro with your comments questions and feedback at cerebrocast at gmail.com next week's episode long awaited
and eagerly anticipated by many will be an episode about Catherine Pride, variously known as Kitty Pride, Shadowcat, Ariel, Sprite, or Kate Pride, the Red Queen of Hellfire Trading and Captain of the Marauder. My guest will be Dr. Stephanie Burt, a professor at Harvard University, who you may know from various comics commentary. If you have questions for me or Stephanie about Kitty slash Kate Pride, write in to the email account. I'm looking forward to that episode and digging in. It's sort of a special Purim episode, which I didn't plan, but it seemed cute <laughs> when I thought about it. Thank you again so much for all of your support. The analytics on this podcast go up every week, which is insane to me, and I am so grateful. So thank you so much for everything. And until next time, everybody, bye. And now you can say bye if you want. Goodbye. <laughs> X-Men, X-Men In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world